0: Are drills important yes but only only if you have the time to do it so like if you simplify what drills are doing is your if you look at the law of dynamic correspondence you're trying to find the drills that touch on a few of those few of those five like the ranges of motion, it's like I love dribbles because you touch on the ranges of motion. So- What's up
1: everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky mid where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. And this week's guest, we have Les Spellman and I have no doubt that this is gonna be anything but boring as Les is a uh, breath full of knowledge. So Les, go ahead and introduce yourself to the few people who maybe don't know who you are.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate you having me on. Um, the intro part's always hard because it's like, where do I start, where, you know, what do I say? But uh, mainly, obviously, I'm a coach, I'm a dad. I've been in it 10 years. Uh, started off like literally as a janitor, like literally cleaning toilets. And I, I can go into that story, which is insane. Um, since then starting an internship with the Olympic Committee, turning that into an actual job and then realizing that uh, I made zero dollars and I was poor and I uh, was gonna live in poverty, So I I had to figure out how to scale a business and that's been like my life's work the past five and a half years was scaling a business and and trying to maintain uh, quality and not bastardizing what I'm doing. So that's the brief, (laughs) the brief overview.
1: (laughs) How have you been able to do that and not, you didn't go the route of going college strength and conditioning and that's a, you know, a good amount of the listeners are people that did that route, they're either in university or they're in college or high school. You didn't, why?
0: Yeah, honestly, um, I mean the truth is I I wasn't qualified to work in college originally. Um, If you really, like if I break it down to be honest, like I graduated college with a communications degree and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I told you offline that I went to California to go to an Olympic uh, rugby tryout and never left and and honestly like i didn't plan on being a coach i was a athlete that really thought i was going to go play in the olympics and do all these things and when that didn't happen i really looked at like what am i passionate about and i didn't jump into strength conditioning and, and speed to to really make it a, a lifelong journey which is something that i could do you know short term while i was trying to get back on the team and then i just <laughs> fell in love with it i fell in love with the process of it and to be honest, I, I, I never even got offered a college job until like two, three years ago, you know what That'll I mean? Work. So work? Yeah, no, I didn't, you know, I didn't go the classical route. Um, and there's nothing against that, but like the way that I was looking at it was, I, I got into it to help people. And I felt, initially I felt limited if I were to go to a team at first. And, um, you know, I kind of wanted to, to grow my experiences, like human experiences, I, you know, obviously I was working with Adults and I was working with kids and working with pros and you know so it it was a very different um, experience and, and now I'm getting more I'm doing more team stuff now so it's interesting but yeah so it's very different.
1: You know you're the third person now <clears throat> second guess but third person that I know where they didn't go the route. Um, I had on and he was talking like one of his buddies was like hey you're gonna be my coach and you know you cav and then this other guy my buddy jesse who owns um a muay thai gym they're all three very successful people and it's it's kind of made me even more double down on the fact that it's really about just the ability to connect with humans and then worry about all the credentials right
0: yeah yeah i mean to be honest like i look back on coaching um five six seven years eight, eight years ago i wasn't very good I wasn't a very good coach you know (laughs) that's how it's supposed to be though right yeah i thought i was like i was loud and i controlled the room and you know all those things but in terms of like legitimate coaching i wasn't i wasn't that great but athletes got better so like what does that tell you you know I, i studied communications and i always say like that was a huge competitive advantage for me like learning how to communicate effectively and build relationships like if you do that part that's that's a major major part of it like you see it on the internet and it, you'll see people that are doing crazy stuff and you're like man like but they get a result I mean you know they they they're doing something right but then I I've been obviously educating myself like throughout that process and you know you, you come to find out it's like man I was pretty poor as a coach but there's some qualities in there that are you know were good so yeah
1: what you know, having that communication degree, how did that help you? Like in the ability to, did you understand people's personalities better or were you just like, hey, I'm not afraid to talk in a group full of people because I had to do it in college?
0: Yeah, I get that question all the time. So, okay, so this is, this is a crazy story, like <laughs> it's, it's wild. So growing, growing up, I lived with my uncle like every summer, right? And my uncle was a filmmaker And my uncle, like, he did music videos. like He did Dr. Dre stuff. So I'm on set, like, 13, 14 years old, and I'm, like, I'm seeing all these girls and all this money. I'm, like, hey, man, this is is pretty cool. Like, my uncle does this. So I was getting ready to go to college, and he's, like, what are you going to study? I'm, like, man, I don't know. And he goes, yo, if you study film, you could always pick up a camera and make money. Taking a quick break from the show to tell you about our deal we have going
1: on right now in December. If you sign up for Fundamentals Level 1, you will get one free year at Strength Coach Network. That's right. Sign up for Fundamentals, our 20-hour long-form education course that has information on every topic in strength and conditioning that will make you a better strength coach regardless of the field that you're in. Not only if you're a strength coach, personal trainer, athletic trainer, physio, this is for you because all the education about progressions, regressions, motor learning, speed, agility, jumps, you name it, we have information in it. So sign up for Fundamentals, get a free year at Strength Coach Network. Click the link down
0: below. Let's get back to the show. If you go and study something else, you don't necessarily have a skill. So I was like, cool. Communications was a mixture of journalism, film, you know, kind of everything, so... I took that advice and I was like, I want to learn these skills. And really, what I learned was the the art of storytelling and how to mm. structure a story and how to how to structure your communication. So, like taking like these big things, like I want to get faster, and then being able to communicate those drivers to get faster to the athletes. Like here's the process, and then actually implementing that process, like that was like filmmaking to me, because filmmaking is like you write this story. It's like all right, the, the superhero is gonna kill everybody and He's gonna fight the bad guys. And in that story, there's like four or five different periods. Like He's gonna to learn to be a superhero. Then he's gonna learn to control it. And then he like actually does the actions of it and you see the film. So it's funny because like I started thinking about this, this work like similar to how we were taught in the film school and in the journalism school. And um, it was interesting. And then the second piece of that is I had a traumatic brain injury um, when I was younger. So I had a high speed car accident, broke my femur. I had a traumatic brain injury and part of my rehab was relearning how to read and comprehend and structure uh, thought processes. So like part of learning how to read is taking the words that you're seeing on paper and then structuring them into actual thoughts. So like I'm reading a bunch of a paragraph, but then my brain has to then take that paragraph, take the main points of that paragraph and structure it into a, a solid story. So those two experiences were like, to me going into strength and conditioning and speed was like, it's the same exact thing and what i was seeing was like this very binary like um here's what's on the paper do this but there was no storytelling like hey look like we're going to take you from a to b which is storytelling uh this is what you're going to go through you're going to be sore you're going to be tired you're not going to like me and then we're actually going to do the work and it's gonna be really hard and and you (laughs) you know what i mean so it was like very um interesting for me but yeah that's that's what i studied yeah
1: no that's unbelievable and starting with the first part of it you you make a great point how it is you know your storytelling and it it, you can see it in some of the videos that you put out there on social media and your ability to convey to people what you want them to do because as a coach it's not really what you know it's what you can get your athletes to do and that's been one thing that i've noticed about you is it seems like you have this really good ability to articulate what you have in here to get other people to do do you think strength coaches should go be an actor like you uh, you ever read Mike Leach's book he was just an actor yeah. that knew and then he's like and he was a lawyer so he knew how to talk to people and present arguments and he's like oh that's how I became a coach you think coaches uh, yeah. is Toastmasters even a thing anymore am I showing my age right now
0: <laughs> no it is I mean I, I think the the skill and the art of connecting and communicating and listening Aren't skills that you necessarily um, will pick up just being in a college environment or a pro environment. I think those are skills that you you go and you pick up socially, or you go and pick up on your own. And take classes and courses. Like I got, there's like a little life hack that I don't know if everyone knows this, but most of the Harvard Business School courses are free. You really? Know what I mean, They're, Yeah, yeah. On YouTube, and you just go and you can you could take the course. You don't get credit necessarily, yeah. but like you who cares? Pre- you know what I'm saying you could take the courses so like I'm taking courses on communication and all those types of things I think that's a skill set that is is so important but in college you know if you look at just traditional like you graduate you get your masters your GA you're an intern but you, you work your way up a lot of times you're you're being talked at and, and you're being told what to do and it limits your creative thinking of like how can I convey this to a group of people that are my age or older than me or better than me or whatever. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it levels the playing field. So I think it's a skill set that coaches should spend a, a significant amount of their free time researching and figuring out. Cause it, like the information's there. Like none, none of us have created anything brand new, but hmm. the, the people that do really well in the industry are taking concepts that other people much smarter have created and then deciphering that information into digestible formats and then getting buy-in from the athlete, coach, sports scientist, whatever. So yeah.
1: Is it harder for you to get that buy-in being somebody that they hire? Or is it easier because they kind of went after you?
0: Um, I would say it's, it's both sides, like depending. depending. Like I think the hardest, that's, what I like to do is I like having those challenging conversations. Um, and that's another part of the communication is like skillful disagreements. And like, you know, you see it on Twitter all the time, like, there's, you can see, I get heated, but I don't care. It's like, fun. It's, it's like sparring, it's like sparring for me, but, um, it's, it's really interesting to see how you take people from very different backgrounds. Like I'll give you an example, you have a sports scientist, you have somebody that's leading the rehab, you have a strength coach, you have a sport coach all have very different upbringings, educations, backgrounds, all of that, and very different personalities. Well, how do you get everybody to agree? Mm. And like, it's having that conversation to find the commonalities and then to defining that common language and then restructuring your vocabulary and your dictionary of how you speak about things so that everybody's on the same page. To give you an example, like I can start out and say, hey coach, I want to do a speed session with your team. Oh no, 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 I don't want to do that. Hey coach, I want to do a warm up with your team yeah, yeah, do that, do that. Well, within my warm up, I'm going to do speed, <laughs> but it's the concept that they understand, right? So just finding that, those common language. So yeah, I've had, I've had the trouble, but I kind of seek those things out. I kind of look for um, those experiences because it's, it's fun for me. Like I, I like bringing, bringing together different mindsets and not necessarily like trying to be an expert And it. It's just like, well, how do we connect? You want to do this and you want to do this, and you're really saying the same thing. You're just using two different words, and one one side sounds abrasive, but he's really saying the same thing. And um, so yeah, it's been a challenge. Um, even even when a team brings me in and they're like, "Hey, we want to get faster," and I I sit down and, and they want to do all this really sexy, cool stuff, and I'm like, "Well, well, all you really need to do is like stop doing this, and you're gonna put you're gonna do you're gonna run faster, like." I don't know if you really need my services, just stop doing this dumb thing. Like <laughs> like a marathon, like, you know what I mean? So yeah, to be honest, it's, it's interesting, but that's the fun part. So.
1: Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. So that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. You know what? There's so many things that I feel like we could go with that because I mean, to be brought in and be like, oh, I'll make my team faster. It's like, well, shoot, Do you, is, the, is your first question like, um, well, what does faster mean to you? Like, that way you actually have some sort of metric?
0: Yeah, like define, the, number one, define that. Um, and, and so like, give me something objective that you're seeing. So like, if it depends who I'm talking to, if I'm talking to a sport coach, it's like, you want to be faster to execute this strategy and to execute these tactics of playing the game okay that makes sense now let's go through how we practice currently and then let's go through what the current strategy is and then basically from there it's like does it make sense to go in and do all this invasive testing and all this stuff Um, sometimes yes like there are instances that's like all right we have this major runway of time to actually make changes so let's do that but a lot of times it's no it's just let's restructure on some of the philosophies of how we might be practicing or what we might be doing that's preventing players from running fast. And, and it's, it's really about an environment. You know. Like, I think when people think about speed training, they think about this like mathematician coming up with this equation to make everyone faster. When in reality, it's just, what's the environment look like? And does that environment, is it conducive to sprinting and to running fast? And if it's not, let's correct that. And if it is, now we can optimize and actually go to the next level, which might look like some testing and some other stuff.
1: Um, that leads into my next question pretty well one of my friends wanted to to know about you know What exactly do you do with your GPS? Um, speed evals once you get there like what are you looking at? How are you measuring it? What are kind of without giving away your secrets obviously, but just you know a 10,000 foot view of what you do?
0: Yeah, there's there's really no secrets to be honest. Like, I didn't I didn't invent anything I just find the the people that do a really good job and then combine some things together. So the first thing is to, to go with super high level is, is some type of physical testing. Now that physical testing to me is, is like, take away all the technical, like how you hit the ground and all that, whatever, and let's just look at time and velocity. So how fast do you run? Um, if you really want to get into force velocity stuff, you look at how do you accelerate to that speed. Um, and that could be done split times, that could be done GPS, that could be done lasers, but some type of physical profiling. So let me understand, I have a squad of 100 players and across those 100 players I want to know which athletes are really good accelerators, which which guys hit a really high velocity, and which guys str- struggle somewhere in the middle. So like that's that's the physical profile.
1: Taking a quick break from the show everybody promises will take less than 15 seconds. Friendly reminder, go ahead hit that subscribe button below. It helps us out and it helps you out by being notified whenever we have new content come out. So, hit that subscribe button and with this, let's get back to the show.
0: The second profiling I do is, is more on the technical side. And really, the first thing I look at from the technical side is based around your signature of how you run, are there any risks? Based around your signature of how you run, are there any risks? So, like For example, if an athlete spends a long time in the air and has a really far step length, you can assume that they're crashing into the ground with these high impacts. You're gonna see a lot of foot, ankle, calf, those types of things. This is all James Wild's research um, out of England or or could be you spend a lot of time on the ground you have this really short step length so you spin really fast like okay like what are the what are the the areas that we've seen based on research that are at risk right that's that's the first thing on technical and the second thing on technical is if we if we do interventions what can we change and how and and how well can we change it so like if you see a certain signature like everyone talks about this big backside swing like is it bad right You know if we make a change to this big backside swing is it going to make the athlete faster is it going to make them safer and is it going to increase their performance if the answer is no anywhere in there we're not we're not going to change it if it's yes we can and we have a runway we have a build up we have time we're going to change it Um, and then the third thing is like just kind of monitoring changes so there are teams that we're doing this with now where they're taking a technical profile like once every two weeks and you're seeing the effects of gameplay and, and how it's changing their running signature, and you're starting to kind of predict or look at um, what might pop up in the future, whether you're gonna get slower, or you're gonna potentially get an injury, or, or things like that. And we're not stepping on any rehab toes, like we don't define who's gonna get injured, they do, but we give them the information. Um, so yeah, there's, there's really those levels. And then the, the last level is like, if I really wanna go deeper, um, and look at force plate analysis. We do a lot of Alex Natera's isometric test, but there's there's different layers, and and not every team does layers, and and sometimes it's just give me the last year of practice of GPS data, and let's look at how we practice, and and come to find out you don't do anything fast in practice, and you do all the junk volume. So let's start there, and like let's just change practice, and let's see the change. So that's yeah, it's it's pretty open ended, but. To be 100% transparent, like I don't build my business around doing consultancy or, or, doing that. So it's more of a passion thing, and I can be very objective and very honest because I'm not doing that necessarily for the money. I'm doing that because it's a passion, and I don't play video games. So like hmm. that's that's what I do, you know, for video game type stimulation for my brain. So yeah. <clears throat> Long answer. But yeah. No,
1: that was a great answer. What uh, what do you think about? with within that force velocity profiling that you talked about, how do you see it being used well and poorly within the weight room where it's like, okay, we're going to spend all this time trying to high force or high velocity need for people on the field. But then I feel like it gets kind of ruined in the weight room. Have you seen that? And if so, again, not naming names or anything, but just on your experience, what have you seen the good and the bad?
0: Yeah, for sure. Like going back to what I was saying about communication and you have the strength coach and then you got the on-field guy and then you got the sports scientist and you got the sport coach. And a lot of times they're on very separate pages. So like there's there's philosophies out there. It's like, "Well, that force velocity stuff doesn't work." And "Well, let me look at the other components. It's very dependent." Which is why it's a flawed test and it's a flawed implementation like every test is, but if you don't have the buy-in in terms of building a program based around like sprint based philosophy. Like I I'm I'm running I'm trying to get get my players faster and to do that I'm supporting it with weight room and supporting it with practice and supporting it with all these things. You're not gonna have the result. Um, so yeah, it's 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 difficult if you are doing like hypertrophy program in the weight room and you're trying to emphasize <laughs> max velocity on the field. Like it's those two things don't don't go together. Well I mean all the way back to Charlie Francis, it's just like if we're going to do a, a very like stacked periodization where we're going to emphasize qualities like we're going to do all things but in what quantities we're going to do those things if we don't have that that communication and that line there's no point in doing the testing you know what i mean just just you know operate how you're operating so yeah it's it's difficult for sure
1: <clears throat> for any of the people that are listening out there they're like all right you know we're trying to do this and we're you know, we're in the off season and we're going to do it the right way. What would you tell them like, okay, this would be, you know, how you should do it from a 10,000 foot view the right way based off of all the good things you've seen?
0: Yeah, I would I would start with that physical profiling. So your options are, you could do like, if you have lasers, I would just get an understanding of how athletes accelerate and how they hit velocity. So if you did splits like 10 and 40, whatever, Um, If you're doing force velocity profiling, that's a really good tool to understand early, late, and velocity. Um, And then there's video in there too, but I would just stick with those first two. So understand across your team how athletes are accelerating to their velocity. Um, And then from there, the second thing I would do is make it um, split by position group or position. So you have your lineman, you have your big skill, you have your skill and right. then I would compare within that group how the athletes are. So like within my skill players, um, you're at the bottom of your acceleration ability or the top of your acceleration ability, right?
1: What's up strength coaches, taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at Strength Coach Network put out the Cheeky mid but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members only forum. Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out.
0: And then the third thing I would do is I would look at based around need and then based around our timeline, how should we build out our training? So if I have four weeks before the season, the truth is you're not going to do <laughs> that. You're not going to make any significant changes. You might as well just keep doing what you're doing. But if, I, if I'm right here in the year and then I play in August, you do have a window. you got 12 weeks. So you know that you, you take, you take your, your whole 12 weeks and you look at your different phases. Your first phase, I would say that's the time where you can attack like everybody very generally. Like everybody kind of needs the same base, just like GPP, it's very general. Everybody's running with heavy sleds, everybody's accelerating, everybody's getting stronger in the weight room. Then your second phase is where I would say now you can start to be a little bit more specific and individual. So like you have your underperforming accelerators, you have your underperforming velocity guys, you start to give them more specific stimulus. So my guys, my four receivers that are terrible off the ball, you guys are gonna continue going heavy or continue doing power stuff. Um, and then that last phase, the last four weeks, I would say you're back to more general where everybody needs to run fast and everyone needs to increase their volume as they go into camp and as they go into, and get more specific with decelerations, change of directions, getting into camp. Um, Yeah, so I would say I would be very general in the beginning. Everybody does the same. In the middle, I would get more specific to what players need. And then at the end, I would be general again in terms of um, stimulus.
1: Again, you you teed up my next question um, perfectly because I've been wondering, you know, how much of this – of the training, do you emphasize and in, 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 excuse me, you emphasize philosophy-wise in your own head of like, okay, I got to do this amount of top-end work or this amount of ACL work, and are you just going to be like, hey, it depends on the sport, and it even depends on the position? Because if so, I get it. But I'm leading into how this relates to the decelerative work that you've done because I think that is also um, maybe not as talked about as much by other people, but I think that's something that is you do a great job with.
0: Yeah, so yeah, this is this is the common uh, question. So, you uh, know, I'm gonna start kind of at the end and then hopefully I'll make sense back to the beginning. Remember the question, but, um, so if I have a sport like soccer, the first thing I wanna do is understand, like, what does a sport of soccer entail? Um, look at volumes, so how much distance they're covering or how much time they're playing, how much time the ball's in play. Um, okay, intensity, so, and I'm, I'm not, not the soccer level of intensity. I'm looking at like the understanding of intensity is anything neurologically demanding. So high speed, high excel, high cell. So what is the intensity that we see? Is the game played really fast? Um, then I look at the density. So like how often are, you know, how many meters per minute or how often are we accelerating? How many plays per minute? Those types of things. And then I could also look at collision. So once I understand that the sport, then I could start to reverse engineer. So like if in a soccer game, they they never really play um, in this high speed zone. It's a lot of aerobic stuff. That might change my emphasis of training. So I might emphasize throughout the week the aerobic side of things more. Now if the game plays middle, higher speed, I'm gonna emphasize the repeatability and the high speed side to work on that. So I start kind of with that template. So just to give give a disclaimer, like if I have a basketball team, speed looks very different than a soccer a lacrosse team or football team. So and now from there, I look at, okay, like there, there are basic, basic ranges of uh, work that we need to do to actually get the right stimulus to run faster. So if I'm running high, high speed and I'm running maximal speed throughout the week, there is a limit to that. And I would say like, I wouldn't do anything over like 300 to 500 yards of planned work in that. Uh, and that's not saying, like, walking. I'm saying just, like, planned work. So if I'm running 30s, things like that. So there's a there's an optimal range for speed. And then there's an optimal range for acceleration. If I want to get quality acceleration work, I'm not doing more than 80 yards of resisted work. I'm not doing a ton of volume in terms of reps and ranges. I'm making those really quality. And then we can start to shape it up is look at, you know, the volume side of things that we talked about is, like, now I can start looking at the more extensive type activities and how I can build out the rest of my week. So like, does that involve tempo work? Like, some people are against tempo work, I'm not. <laughs> I think tempo work is great. Um, you know, like, Then I can start to build out my week. So when I look at like, deceleration, I, I create another bucket. So I have my acceleration bucket, I have an understanding of volumes, like let's say it's 300 yards of planned work and I have max velocity, let's say it's 500 yards of planned work, then I have my deceleration bucket. So for my deceleration bucket, I have two categories I need to touch on. So the first category I need to touch on is capacity. I need to touch on my maximal ability to decelerate, and the maximal ability to decelerate is always going to be from a high speed to a braking action. So I need to touch that throughout the week, is high speed to a braking action. And then the second piece I need to look at is the change of direction, so the different like vectors of changes of direction. Because every change of direction is preceded by deceleration. And I need to do that both extensively and intensively. So when I look at my week, the long answer is like, I look at the game, and once I get the idea of the game and what's important, and I have my basic volumes and intensities I need to put in, then I start to bleed in where does these changes of directions make sense. So I like to do changes of direction on both tempo or extensive days and intensive Mm -hmm. days. Um, where where, where we're doing speed. So that's a long-form answer. It's probably a couple other questions off of that.
1: What's up, strength coaches? Want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Team Builder. Team Builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in person or remote using team builder not only will you be able to program for your athletes but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires with the leaderboard you can have an exercise performed that day whether it be a lift a sprint or a jump and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train this ensures that as a coach you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train so if you're interested in team builder click the link down below and find out more information let's get back to the show <clears throat> no and you you did hit on the whole premise of it all was the fact that i think from one of your <clears throat> one of your presentations or maybe something from altus where it was like your body's not going to run faster than it has the ability to stop and you touched yeah. on that where it's like hey you have to go from a full speed into a stop how do you go about programming it or how would you recommend to our listeners that maybe had never heard that before and am like all right What should I be doing to program it for my athletes to do?
0: Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I look at in terms of capacity is the ability to go high speed into braking, just stopping. It's not any change of direction. It's just can you you get the athlete to run full speed and then willingly brake? And there's different tests you can do without going into too much detail. Like an ADA test is a 20-meter sprint into a brake. And the simplest way to, to measure that is what speed do they reach in that 20 meters and how long does it take for them to break. The hardest way, like if I really wanted to dive in, I could look at early decel, late decel, time to stop, distance to stop, all that. But yeah, the, the initial way is the easiest. Like I could have 100 kids line up, run 20 yards with GPS on and then stop after the cone, easy. So that's the first thing I do. So that is like my capacity. Like it's interesting because it's like, um, I heard somebody say this before where teams are like, well, we don't hit super high speeds in games. And I'm like, okay, well, do you hang clean in a game? No, okay, well, yeah, well, that makes sense. Like you're building, you're building a quality and you're building a capacity for something. Now, once I have that capacity and that quality and I'm training that consistently, what I wanna do is now look at the different vectors of changes of direction. So really basically I can look at the vectors as like downhill, so I get a 45 degree downhill. I could look at 90 or anything between 45 and 90. I could look at uphill, which would be like 135 degrees, and I could look at straight ahead. Um, And then you could look at the most challenging, which would be like a a straight back, like a 180 degree turn, right? So if I look at the different vectors of deceleration, I wanna look at programming those vectors both extensively and intensively. So there are days where I wanna repeat and do multiple decelerations at different vectors over and over again that are pre-planned. Then I want to move from pre-planned to more of a reaction. So maybe it's a follow the leader, or maybe it's a game. Eventually I want to end it up where we're building the volume so that they can play the game and there's, you know, we're matching that quality in the off season. But I want to build that, that changes of direction in different vectors. And then intensively would we'll be doing those changes of direction at high, high speed, at high entry speeds. So when I look at programming throughout the week, I have a day that's focused on the intensive aspects of deceleration, which is high speed into braking, and maybe high speed into braking in different changes of direction. Then I have days that are more focused on the extensive, the change of directions where it's going to be um, repeat or continuous or high density, so short breaks where they're decelerating over and over and over again, building that capacity. So I look at it in those two buckets, um, and then I bleed that throughout the week. So. Depending on the sport, like if I have a football team right now, we have three days a week. We have an acceleration day, which is like a pure, horizontal, linear day. Everything's straight. Then we have a max velocity day. That max velocity day is a combination of straight line speed and uphill changes of direction. Then Mm -hmm. we have a change of direction day, which is changes of directions in all vectors that are pre-planned, and then it goes to a more reactive, and then it goes to games. And that's those are my those are my three days that I have, and and that's typically how I run most of it is like, and and I don't really do I, I stop doing high speed um, in just a linear fashion. I do high speed in curves. I do high speed with uphill cuts. I do high speed anything that's uphill and and moving with the reaction and with the stimulus of another player that have to react to to maintain that speed. So, but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where we roll with that.
1: <clears throat> sticking on with the high speed stuff, and you talked about the yardage before, do you only count the fly yardage? Or do you also count maybe five, 10 yards before it? So if you're gonna do like a 30 yard build, 10 yard fly, do you count like, okay, that's about 20 yards of high speed or are you just only gonna take 10?
0: Yeah, so when I said that 500 number, like I'm, I'm looking at if I don't have GPS and I'm quantifying from the beginning of the run through the high speed zone. So like if I'm doing a 30 build, 10 fly, I would just say that's 40. now if i'm doing if i I have gps and i'm running through it i'm going to look at just that like upper zone and gps like the high speed like 90 to 100 percent, and i would have different volumes like typically in that we don't even go over 100 yards of high high speed like above 90 95. um that that zone could be pretty short in reality um but i'm looking at it from the standpoint like if i don't have gps i'm just going to count that whole zone as my as my distance for that um one of my former colleagues Amit, if you're listening to this this
1: question's for you brother um he and i would always talk about like mechanics with team sport athletes and it's because he ran track and he worked with the track team and he always talked he's like you know is there ever really enough time to develop the changes in their mechanics for high speed running for a team sport athlete if maybe it's 10 to 15 minutes let's be on the generous end four times a week for a four week phase. He's like, is that even enough? Why even do it? And I know my opinion and I know he knows his opinion, but what is your opinion on that?
0: Yeah, mixed. I I think depending on the time that you have, like if you have, I I look at it this way. The most important thing you can do is get the stimulus to make someone Mm. faster. The second most important thing you could do is develop the physical quality. And the third most important thing you could do is change someone's technique. And they're kind of tiered that way because of the time that it takes to respond to this to, to the actual thing. So, like responding to stimulus, you're gonna make someone faster within a couple of weeks um, if they if they have the right stimulus, the right volume and intensity of work. If you're physically supporting that with like plyos and weight room and building the the other pieces around it, your practice isn't like an asshole practice where you're just running gas because you to you're going to get faster. Right? Now, right? So if I look at the technical side, if I want to make a technical change, well the truth is initially making a technical change would make someone worse. Mm. And, and making a technical change is also a major risk because they might move that way, their, their signature might be that way uh, as a preventative mechanism. So like they might, they might mm. do something that looks weird to you technically and you might say, oh, we gotta change it, we gotta change it." but it might be something that their body is, is producing to get the actual result that they need to get. So you're, gonna, you're exposing them to risk, you're exposing them to poor performance, and then you're wasting time a lot of times. <laughs> so, if you have 15 minutes, you spend 11, 12 minutes on technical stuff, well, you got 11, 12 minutes of very low intensity work and that leaves a very short amount of time to get the right stimulus, which means you're probably not gonna get the stimulus. So when I look at that, I look at, are drills important? Yes, but only, only if you have the time to do it. So like, if you simplify what drills are doing, is you're, if you look at the law of dynamic correspondence, you're trying to find the drills that touch on a few of those, few of those five, like the ranges of motion. So, like, I love dribbles because you touch on the ranges of motion. Um, the force application w- would be one too. So like, if I get dribbles, I can also get high forces in short time frames. All right. So I try to pick the drills that have the highest transfer, that are also the easiest to learn. Because sometimes it takes like, if it takes six weeks to learn a drill to be able to do it right, like, scrap it. Like, I think there's a there's definitely an overemphasis of drill work in uh, team sport athletes, and um, I would say. You could, you could get by not doing any drills and be successful. You cannot get by not doing any stimulus work or physical work, you know what I mean? So with that in mind, it's like if I'm, if I'm a sport coach and I want my players to get faster, you are absolutely a speed coach. You absolutely can make your team sport players faster by making sure they hit the right stimulus, supporting it with some jumps and bounds and plyos and uh, weight room stuff, or just not being an asshole coach and practice and you're going to get players faster so yeah absolutely that was
1: i don't know if you've ever said that before but that's a uh, drills are only important if you have time is something that i wrote down and i'm gonna completely build off of because it kind of goes into what we've been talking about on strength coach network for a while now is you don't have that much time to teach olympic lifts a hang power like and you can say what you want but it's not, it doesn't have the same ROI and you can't instantly see it kind of like running. So that's an interesting point because sometimes maybe you don't have the time and you do just have to kind of put them in there. And something that I've seen on your socials is like, Hey, how can you then teach the drill maybe in the rest period? Is that something that you have then done when you're in a time crunch?
0: Yeah, for sure. Like we, we will, it's like, it's like, um, look at this, like a uh, skill acquisition and, and, and stacking. So like, There's times where we'll do like a high-speed run, and in that break, we'll do a drill. It's like we'll drill, 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 and then we'll do something else. Then we'll come back to the high-speed run. Because instead Uh of like, we know, okay, if I run really, really, really fast, I have like a four, let's say three to five-minute rest period. Well, in team sports, if I if I tell it, if I tell the soccer coach, hey, coach, we're gonna run one time and then rest three minutes, I'm fired. Like he's gonna be like, I'm like what do I have you out here to have these players standing around looking at butterflies doing? He's gonna look down and just see people resting. So what I started doing is like, all right, I'm gonna make you run fast, like warm you up, obviously. And then, then we're gonna to go to station two. So in station two, we're gonna hold the med ball overhead and do switches or do this or do that. Like it's just filling the time because drills are relatively low intensity in terms of like speeds that we're moving forward, even forces at times in certain drills. So stack the habit. So the mm. the goal is to make you run faster. If I do a drill after running fast, I can connect the skill of the drill to the skill of running faster. Because the next time I go run, I'm gonna think about whatever the coach was cueing. So yeah, I do a little bit of that. Like um, I I would say like on social media, um, our marketing team is awesome, but they don't they don't necessarily know like. Um, man, how do I say this, if you're listening, marketing team, I love you guys, but they're gonna look at it and say, okay, like he's doing most of the coaching during the drills, so let's put all the drills on Instagram, right? Well, because when I I watch somebody run, I don't say anything, so it doesn't look very good on Instagram, so it's like, (laughs) you're gonna end up seeing a lot of drills from me, but that's mainly because that's the only time I'm talking, so that's why it looks like that, and that's why it's like, there's so many drills, I'm like, it's like four, but yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean?
1: (laughs) For anybody that's listening, and they went the same route, you know, or or people like me, like, all right, they're in a transition period, and they're like, am I going to get back into college or not? What was, in your opinion, your big break into, I mean, some of the higher level clientele that you've been able to get around? Like, what was kind of that, um, the breakthrough moment for you, and how did it happen?
0: Yeah, uh, man, so, like, just to be clear, like, starting out, I, well, I, I was working with the Olympic team, so... I didn't make the Olympic rugby team. I was in the player pool for a little bit. wasn't very good. Um, I don't even know why I was there. <laughs> be honest, but it's because
1: every the minute we're done playing, you still want to keep playing in some capacity, yeah, right? Like
0: exactly. So I was whatever. So long story short, I got offered to intern with the Olympic Committee and work with rugby, which turned into like an actual job. So I'm I'm now working with USA Rugby and uh, with the sevens team. And then that led into doing a little bit of work in other countries with sevens and and all of that. So I had a little bit of uh, experience. And then I also got a bronze medalist in uh, bobsled in 2014, which was like my second year of coaching. So again, I had hardly n- anything to do with it. I got lucky because this girl <laughs> was a massive fast athlete, Asia Evans. She's a monster. She would have got she would have got a bronze. you probably would have got a silver if my mom was coaching her, right? So I, I got lucky. So. Anyway, I get done the Olympic stuff, and I'm like, yo, I literally made zero dollars. I think I lost money every year working <laughs> in the Olympic side. And I'm like, this ain't it, bro. And <laughs> I was trying to get advice from people, and they're like, man, like start a gym, start this. I'm like, I don't know. So I came up with this idea. I was like, I'm going to DM, and um, Twitter was really big, it was 2015, 2016. I'm going to DM every agent that I can find. I'm going to look them up, whatever. And I hit up every agent. And I got no responses. So I'm like, man, all right, I can't get in the NFL space. So I had this, like, camp, and I had this quarterback show up, and he was from Oregon. And I'm like, no way. Like, you, Dakota Pru cop showed up. And he was like, man, I want, you know, I love this. Like, I want, to, I want to do my draft training with you. I was like, done. So he was my first athlete. Like, just randomly showed up, right? And it was through a mutual connection. But he shows up the draft training he brings his friend Johnny Munt and Johnny I don't know probably haven't heard of him but he's won a Super Bowl he's like kind of low-key tight end but he's he's been in the league seven eight years good for him him, and he brought another guy so I had like this group of three guys that were free agent level maybe never gonna make it but I was like you know what I'm making I was making zero dollars from there I was sleeping in my car I had one intern we would sneak into hotels in the morning, get oatmeal packets to eat. To eat, we crushed protein shakes for lunch, and then we collectively put money together to either decide to get gas or to get food at night. And this is this is a real story, like this is for real. So we're going through this process, and I'm like, look, we can't afford a strength coach, we can't afford a physical therapist, whatever. So we're gonna take this. Um, we're gonna take a bunch of courses, right? I'm gonna take the EXO certification course. I'm gonna take a stretch therapy course. I'm gonna do all this stuff. And I did. So I was a stretch therapist. I, w- I did the strength stuff. I did all that. And I was like, you know what? We're going to do the best job we can with these three guys. And I promise you, next year we're going to have more. So, anyway, long story short, I did a really good job with those guys. They did well. They all had friends and teammates. They, they chattered. And I don't know how good of a job I really did, but I had 18 the next year.
2: Oh, wow.
0: Uh, 18 guys showed up the next year. Same idea. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to. I'm gonna learn as much as I can, I'm gonna bring people in, I'm gonna take zero dollars personally, and I'm gonna invest Again. it in education. Oh, you yeah. invested,
1: oh, uh, okay, you reinvested uh, it in the business, yep.
0: Reinvested in the business, like, little things, like, I was, you know, instead of the guys, hey, go drink your protein, I'm I'm buying protein shaker bottles, putting their name on it, making them the shake at the end of the, the session, like, little things that, you know, are, are gonna go a long way, because we didn't have, like, crazy facilities, anything like that, mm-hmm. so, My big break came is, like, I killed it with those 18. Guys ran 4-3 fast, whatever. Guys, you know, I had my first guy drafted. I had my first guy at the combine. The next year, I got approached by Kobe Bryant's group to run Mamba Sports Academy um, draft. But the way that it happened was I was, like, literally – and Mamba guys, Sports Academy, if you're listening, you probably never even heard this story. But (laughs) basically what happened was I, like – camped out at the facility when I heard Kobe was going to be there and I just like begged for an interview and um, they're like yeah okay cool so I got an interview and basically they made me like the third in line to run the, the combine stuff so there was two guys ahead of me that were like the senior guys and I was like the junior guy under I was like yeah cool I'll take it um, I got lucky because those two guys stopped showing up to meetings and I kept I was showing up to meetings in LA and I live in San Diego at 8 a.m. And I'm, I'm driving up at 4:30 in the morning to go up there I went to every meeting. So eventually, they were like, hey, Les, like, we can't trust these other guys. Like, I need you, I need you to run it. So I got that break, and that was 2019, and I was Greedy Williams, Quentin Williams. I had my first rounders. And um, the thing is, the interesting thing is, is I, I never took a job. I only did 1099 because I was like, eventually, I kind of want to do my own, like, thing. So the next year, I did my own, but then I partnered with Mamba. So, like, I had my own business, but then I partnered with them to do the strength and the recovery and everything else. and I had Joe Burrow and I had all these guys. Same philosophy: kill it, do as much as you can, help, don't take any money. So until 2020, I never made a dollar on combine training. I never profited a dollar on combine training because uh, I reinvested everything I made back into more staff, more people, and more education, like uh, splitting the pie up to bring in a, a better strength. Like I'm, a am good at it, but I'm, I'm not great at it. So <laughs> you need to hire out, right? So I hired out. <laughs> You know we were the first the group to that did gps and combine training so that was a cost like so long story short um i got my big break in 2019 i had greedy williams ran a 4-3 quentin williams ran a 4-8 at 305 pounds like yeah, that's when i started human. getting noticed and i just looked at it the way i looked at everything like i'm just going to build really good relationships with the athletes and do a really good job communicate a ton of information and To the agent, so they understand what's happening. Then I'm gonna use that to get another group of guys, and that's kind of how it it went. And um, yeah, so it was very organic, and it's 100% relationship based. Like, I mean, I'm I'm in every guy's wedding, you know, like I'm I'm there. Like, to me, it was never about the business side of things. It was like you're 23 years old and you're about to make 50 million dollars. Like, let me help you figure this thing out, right? And like even now, I can say I don't combine isn't about profitability it's like it it, it's a testament to a coach to show is your is your philosophy going to work and are you going to get buy-in and are they going to execute at the highest level it's the best way to do that so yeah i mean that's that's how it grew yeah
1: that's awesome and to any of our listeners out there that just heard that hopefully it was a uh you know inspiring story to just the ability to keep pushing through and you got to be i mean You gotta be proud of your ability to just keep pushing through those difficult times. Any specific textbook or things that you've read that have helped you along the way to to stick with that mindset? Because that's impressive, man.
0: Yeah, um, the Atomic Habits is is probably like build systems, not goals. Like, build your system. Um, Like, yeah, set goals, but build your systems and and understand that like coaches don't really think as much about investment because like. To be to be truthful, like a lot of coaches don't have like the capital to invest in the businesses and other things, but coaches can invest time and energy, and like the time and energy investment reaps massive benefits. So like the time and energy spent building a system or building your culture or building your mission or bu- building your vision is gonna reap like huge effects long term. So like that's Atomic Habits helped me. Uh, obviously the Bible, um, and then. Like in terms of like um, philosophy books uh, or sport philosophy books, like Fergus Connolly's books really helped me understand um, communication within sports but also helped me understand that everybody has a bias and that everybody's gonna think they understand things but the more you understand, the less you realize you actually know.
1: Whew, so ain't that it,
0: the truth? <laughs> yeah, so like it helps you maintain that, um, um, like Jay Z had a had a lyric. He was like, I'm a, or Biggie had a. He's like, I'm attack this as if I was an intern. Like the day one, I was every day mindset of like I'm an intern because no matter how much you know, there's still like this mountain of knowledge that someone else has, and you have to be able to to humbly learn from them, but still do your job and have have confidence. So like having that ability is is massive in sports. Like you do need an ego in this field. You know what I mean? Like you, I think you do, but it's how much and is it controlled? Because at the end of the day, you have to face the kids that you have to have confidence in front of. The athletes have to have confidence in front of. So, like, Fergus helped me understand I don't really know shit. And, like, attack it with confidence, but be open when you, you get feedback. Like, go seek it out and negative, seek out some negative feedback about how what you've done, might, you, you might have thought it was good how did it negatively affect someone else within your system and you and you know what I mean so yeah
1: no man I appreciate it um is there anything that we didn't talk about that you that you want to have a, a soapbox on and have the ability to, to say something on or if not man I'm gonna let you go and enjoy the rest of your day
0: yeah I mean honestly like I look at i look at this field and like I, I'm sure a lot of people have this is like you look at Twitter you'll get things it, it's kind of it's depressing! Like depressing. Our, our, our industry is very interesting, the way that we operate with each other and communicate with each other. Um, and I, I would just encourage people just to be real. And like, if you don't like something, say it. I don't care what badge you got on your chest, because the more people that start doing that and start being real, and like, hey man, this isn't, I don't like this, or I do like this. Like, we, we have to get to the point in this industry where people stop accepting bullshit and stop accepting uh less and like until that happens like we don't move forward like we, we don't we don't have the respect that a PT has in in some fields and in some industries like you know what I mean they look at us like oh you just you're just in the weight room or you're just on the field so I think a lot of that comes from us not speaking up on stuff and being real Like right? and and we have to kill this culture of like you eat shit until you become a director Like that's not that's not the reality like that's not the reality like y- you need to be in a culture that builds you and grows you so you don't repeat that cycle so yeah that's like the main thing that i i want to speak on so
1: no better way to go out i i, I agree with you on that that's a. You got me at a loss for words. I appreciate that, man. Um, (laughs) I'm going to leave it down in the show notes. But any any specific site or places that you want people can um, can get information on how to get in touch with you and and what you're doing?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll just like I I really try to not like I suck at um, self promotion and stuff like that. So really, there's two there's two things that I'm working on that are important to me. So the first thing. It's just like the consultancy side of the business, which includes combine and all that stuff. So like, if you're, if you want to chat about that stuff, like Uh The other thing I'm passionate about building is a software platform called Universal Speed Rating. And that's universalspeedrating.com. And we we've built that, we got an MVP going, we raised some money, like it's growing. It's It's about to, we're about to launch something that's like insane that I've been, Working on investing time, energy, money, everything into um, over the next couple of months, it's gonna like, be really, really, really cool. So, check like it out. Like measuring thigh have. angular
1: velocity and ground contact time. Like, what, what do you, you tease it a little bit? Let the people give them, give them a little something, something.
0: Yeah, um, without going into too much detail. And yeah, just, just tease it, myself. Just just a little bit it's uh it, it is a, a tool to measure what you're doing very easily like Perfect. very easily, very simply and um, track athletes and, and all that stuff and if you look at our field and sprinting it's hard because it's a horizontal motion it's moving um, it's not as easy to track as golf and baseball so like those industries are way further ahead we're catching up to that so i think in the next couple months we'll have we'll have something that will be very shocking and and very, and again, I, I, I'm not trying to like, you know, self-promote, but at the same time, the, my mission is to help as many people as possible and collect as much data as possible that we can make objective decisions over. So that's that's been my mission uh, on that side. So yeah, universalspeedrating.com. that's coming out, and then, yeah, let's get it.
1: Appreciate it, man. I'm going to put those in the, in the bottom of the show notes. So that way, uh, both both sites, everybody can see it and uh, appreciate you taking out the time to uh, to talk with us today.
0: Of course. Yeah. Anytime.
1: Have a good one.
3: I am the uh, director of human performance at TCU. I've been in place here for uh, this is my 16th year. uh, With uh, TCU baseball prior to that, you know, worked with football for about 13 or 14 years and. Yeah, so baseball season just started uh, last week. We're we're underway, and so life is busy.
1: Uh, So let's dive into, actually, first of all, the 16 years. How can our listeners out there create stability in a world that's pretty unstable?
3: Yeah, so, you know, when I started in the field of strength and conditioning, I saw my mentors at the time um, just – the The field was, hold on a second, Justin. You're good. Oh, sorry. Come on. I'm going to have people popping in and out because my office becomes an equipment room.
1: <laughs> You're good, dude. Don't worry about
3: it. <laughs> um, so back to my thoughts there. Um, you know, I saw my mentors having a job, hopping away, making 30 some grand at, at, the, at the time. This was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, making 30 grand in strength and conditioning, working 80 hour weeks. And switching schools with their kids every three years for the next opportunity that was five grand more, ten grand more. And early in my career, I moved, I think I had thirteen or seventeen, I can't remember, something like that, thirteen addresses in the first three years of my career. And I hated moving, and I didn't want to be that person. So I was just like every other strength coach, young strength coach got to the job at TCU and thought, "Man, I'll be here three years, and then it's on to something bigger and better. And it just didn't happen that way. I loved Fort Worth. I loved TCU. I loved, I love the uh, people that I was working with um, alongside my colleagues. And it just, it just kind of, it just grew and, and, and we kept building baseball. The program kept getting better and better and better. And it, it, you know, just turned out to be a place where I wanted to stay, I guess. Um, that's, I really don't, I, I don't know how it happened because I was a young strength coach that thought, man, I'm out of here in three years. Right. I'm going to go somewhere else. Next job, bigger, better, all this stuff. There wasn't anything bigger and better at the time, I guess. And um, uh, we made we made TCU bigger and better.
1: How do you handle being on the road? You know, so you're not traveling and and having new addresses, but, you know, baseball season, it's a lot traveling with the team. How do you handle that? And any of our uh, listeners out there that maybe they're basketball or baseball strength coaches and they're traveling and they're struggling with that balance? What would be a piece of advice you'd give them?
3: Yeah, so one of the best things that I've done in the um, in the last two years was out of necessity, and that was to move my morning groups. Um, we found time in the afternoon to start training, especially with baseball. It was a nightmare having six, 7 a.m. groups, and sometimes you have to do that. We had to do that previously, but we found and made time for our athletes to train later in the morning, early in the afternoon before practice. And that was one of the best things I've done to, uh, I guess, create a better work-life balance because in the past you'd be on the road for four days. You'd get back, you know, in the mountain West, we'd get back at two, three, four in the morning. And then sometimes you'd have athletes in here at 6.00 AM, right? Mm-hmm. Kids that didn't travel, they'd be in here at 6.00 AM because that's when they had to lift. And so that work-life balance was a nightmare. You get off the road on a, on a Tuesday, um, Even if we just play across town on a Tuesday night, you're still not getting home till 10.30 or 11. Wind down, it's midnight. You've got a group at 6 a.m. possibly. And so moving groups out of the morning and trying to structure it where they can get sleep, where I can get sleep. I can spend time with my little one at home after we get off the road, instead of having to be back at TCU at 6.30 in the morning, seven in the morning, something like that, where I can roll in mid-morning and then have my groups at noon, roll over to practice, it's just structuring my day um, differently than the typical strength coach has been an absolute lifesaver in the last two years since I've had a little one.
1: Anybody that's listening that maybe just like you manages the department that has people below them, what would be your piece of advice to make sure that they can structure it like that for their staff?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's having to work. We only have one weight room here at TCU, so it's really having to... Um, work with each other a ton to figure out that scheduling. But one of the questions that I ask all of our, all of our staff members here on their, um, basically on their yearly reviews was, were you the strength coach that you wanted to be? Were you the uh, person at home that you wanted to be? Were you, were you the father, the husband, whatever it is that you wanted to be at home? Because I, I don't want you to be the strength coach that you want to be. And then at home, you're not the person that you want to be at home with. Your kids with your wife, and so I want to make sure that they have that work-life balance. Um, and it is—it's—it's it's just a give and take of of figuring out what teams can be in here at what times, and and really communicating and working together, so that you don't have to be up here at six in the morning if 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 you know if we can possibly avoid that. Uh, we've also tried structuring teams so that the last team is out of the weight room before five p.m., so that all of our teams are in here essentially starting their training session no later than four. Um, and I think that's been a big thing that has uh, that's helped some of our staff members in the last year. Now, it's not always perfect. It's not, you know, there's ideal and there's optimal. Ideal is, is the perfect scenario. That's not always how, how it works. Sometimes you got to have optimal. What's the best situation around ideal? And sometimes that's early morning workout. Sometimes it's late, late at night, but we're trying our best to avoid those, you know, 6am and then oh I've also got another team at 530pm rolling in here and now I'm going to be at work for, you know, 16 hours today. We're trying our best to avoid that.
1: Staying here on that kind of topic the fact of being in an administrative role. We're starting to see strength coaches getting more and more of those roles that I think used to be held by athletic trainers if you could just elaborate on that for our listeners who are eyeing that and want it. And, you know, maybe if it's harder than people think, let them know, but what would you say to those that aspire to get those, you know, administrative positions, what are the good, the bad, and looking back on it, what would you tell yourself if you had the ability to?
3: Yeah. So the good with it is just the uh, ability to start in a way, kind of blending um, thought processes into a holistic, a holistic approach. You know we know that it's not just the siloed approach is antiquated, and that's what we see so much uh, so much of in strength and conditioning is that strength and conditioning is siloed from practices, from the skill development, from the from the technical and the tactical aspects, from the uh, sports medicine, and they're all siloed. And so that's one area that I've really tried to have a big influence on with our younger coaches, especially is that we need to blend all these pieces together. You need to be going to your sport coaches and and seeing what's happening in practice. You need to be going to practice. Um, You need to be looking at workloads. We need to try to get GPS with these energy system-dependent sports so that you know what's going on at practices. It's blending all of these pieces so that we can create ultimate athletic performance and um, hopefully injury reduction. Health in our athletes, that's really what it's all about. That's the good. The bad is being on the administrative side is not all it's cracked up to be. It is It is meetings. It is um, a lot of headaches that you didn't realize that you had. Um, and so I am so much less of a coach now than I was previously. That's what people don't understand is, to be honest, I'm not a strength coach anymore a lot of days. It, you take off that hat because you have so many other roles. Your time is extremely, extremely... Um, the word is here. Obviously valuable, but that's not the word I'm looking for. It's it is, it's under demand at all times because there's always somebody walking through that door that says, hey, I've got a problem. A coach walking in the door says, hey, I've got a problem with this staff member. It's always something. Just walking out of the building in the evenings to go to my car, you get stopped by two, three, four people. And before you know it, my wife is yelling at me because I I told her I was leaving 35 minutes ago, and she's like, "Where in the where in the f are you?" Well, I got stopped three times on the way to the parking lot with issues, and so you are less of a coach um, than you ever dreamed of. A lot of times, I find myself. This is where it's been the most difficult is is time management. A lot of times, I find myself having to write my programs with baseball at midnight at home because I don't have time during during the day to to do that stuff to do that work because it's meetings. It's like I said, the pop in somebody randomly coming in the office, a phone call. Um, we've got this problem, and now you've got to you've got to figure these situations out while you're on campus, and um, yeah. So a lot of times I'm taking my work home with me, and and to me that's I shouldn't do that. I have to manage my time better, and that's one of the things that I've had to clean up in the last uh, in the last couple months.
1: Switching gears a little bit into the actual X's and O's of baseball. Um, you know, one of the things I think most people know you for is how prominent max velocity work is with your baseball team. Uh, if you don't mind kind of just diving into a little bit of that and how you've been able to evolve it in your time there.
3: Yeah, so started out as a young strength coach. Um, I believed all the things that, you know, that were prominent 20 years ago that you don't do max speed work because you're going to hurt the athletes. You know, you're going to have a hamstring I- issue. Um, these were things that I was kind of taught as a young strength coach. Um, and how that's evolved is just realizing and understanding that you have to inoculate them against that. Right. And so the principles for us are going to be fast, fresh, and frequent. We want to run fast when we're training speed. I want that, you know, Charlie Francis, 95% um, plus as far as our intent or intensities. Um, fresh. We want our guys to be, to feel good every time that they, uh, they go out to try to run fast and a plan B is always better than the plan A of getting hurt. Right? So if they've got hamstring issues, if they've got anything going on, I tell them, you have to communicate that to me before we ever run a rep full speed. I tell them you need to, you need to let us know how you're feeling. If you don't feel up to it, I want you to stay a half step to one step under, which is what we consider our 90 to 95% zone. Um, um, <clears throat> So we'll say half step to one step underneath, max intent, we're still going to get some good work out of it, but there is an exponential difference between 85% sprints and 100% sprints in intent. Um, we had a, uh, we had a uh, Zoom a few, this was uh, last semester or two semesters ago with uh, um, Dr. Heiderscheit from the University of Wisconsin, and he is the lead researcher for uh, hamstring injuries in the NFL. And so they've done research on the difference in sprinting between, I think it was 85 or 90% and what a max effort 100% sprint was on, I think it was, you know, motor unit activation or or whatever it was, EMG readings possibly. And there was just an exponential difference in that small little gap. And so if we've got guys that are having issues, we say 90 to 95% that half step to one step underneath full intent. We'll still get good work in. So it's communicating with the athletes on that fresh. And then uh, frequency, you know, we want to touch max speed every week, essentially. So I tell the athletes this all the time, that frequency is the most important thing. Baseball is a real challenge because the athletes go home for five weeks before they start the first day of practice, essentially. And so they have to stay on their stuff. That's why you see so many injuries in spring training and preseason baseball, that's when all the injuries stack up is because they've been on their own for the previous four, four or five weeks. And if they haven't been doing their stuff with intent that we want, matching the demands of the sport, you're going to come in and you're going to break in those first four weeks of practices. So that frequency has to be there. I tell them, I don't care if you lift in the weight room over Christmas break. I don't care. That's not what I need. I need you to be hitting the volumes, the intensities and the densities that we're going to, we're going to see on field and practice so that you're matching the demands. The, the, the barbell isn't out on the field. I don't need you to match the squat demands of baseball. I need you to match the movement demands. And with that means we have to hit high speeds on a weekly
1: basis. For any of our baseball or even softball listeners out there, has there been, or excuse me, what was, if any, pushback you had from the coaches on being able to touch that quality, and then what would you advise to our listeners that are trying to work with their coaches and uh, their high performance teams?
3: Yeah, the um, I I don't know that I've ever really gotten any pushback, um, and part of that is because I continually educated our coaching staff from the from the moment I got into TCU and I took this job. Um, I, I talked about this in the presentation at CVAPS. It's a continual education process. In our staff meetings, um, throughout, the, throughout the year, really, if there's something I want to do, change, I'll notify those guys, but I'll, I'll educate them on why we're doing that. So even just on my interview process, I had a PowerPoint put together. I mean, most coaches are doing something like this. I educated them on the standards that I have, all the uh, principles of our programming and how we're going to operate. So they knew before they hired me what they were getting. The first day or the first week that I was on campus, I did that same thing again for the coaching staff and the players, because I wanted the players to understand exactly where I was coming from. All the principles that I believe in and how we are going to train, speed and power are the first of those principles. That's what we are going to, we're going to chase speed and power all day long with our athletes. And so I educated them from the first day. And we used to do that. I don't necessarily do it as much anymore with the athletes because it's a continual education process in the workout, the training session itself. But for the first you know, ten or twelve years, I would sit down with the athletes when they walked on campus that first uh, that first few weeks, and we would go through that PowerPoint again, and I would tell them, here are the standards, the principles, everything, the expectations that I have for you in our training sessions, so that there was never any question just to get everybody on board. So, to me, it is a continual education process because the only reason that coaching staffs wouldn't allow you to do speed work or anything else that should have be happening in any, you know, in any competent training session is because they are uneducated about it. They're uneducated, right? And sometimes, yes, you're going to find coaching staffs that, that won't bend and, and, you know, that's a tough situation. But to me, you can always overcome that with education. And there were times outside of speed development that I did have to educate and was beating your head against the wall all the time. But eventually it got through. Um, I used to have, you know, I used to have um, our um, orthopedic surgeons come in. In fact, we had uh, our, our spine ortho come in and he gave a talk to our coaching staff on parse fractures because we would have a plethora of back injuries, right? And so I preach about this all the time. In the South, we see PARS fractures all the time. So PARS fractures for for the listeners out there are basically a stress fracture in the lumbar spine from overextension and rotation. They are the most common teenage injury, especially in males that you were gonna see across the board. Happens in the South a ton because warm weather, we are playing all the time. You don't really see it much in the North. Um, So we came in, we had the uh, spine ortho come in and give talk to our coaching staff on parse fractures, how they come about, why they are not the fault of the weight room, and just educate our staff about, about why they are prevalent in baseball and what's going on. And so it was a chance to educate and coming out of that meeting, our head coach had a better understanding because I could talk to him all day long about why the weight room is not creating these parse fractures. It's the you know one hour three times a week in the weight room is not the problem versus these high school kids who are playing baseball for, you know, five hours a day, taking swings in a cage with, with two different coaches, um, a, a, a lessons coach on the side as well. And then, you know, they're doing this for 20 hours a week. The weight room isn't the problem. And so I needed somebody else to get that message across. And so that's, we've, we've done things with uh, our orthopedic surgeons to help get that message across.
1: I mean, that's fantastic. Anybody that's listening to that, hopefully you wrote, wrote stuff down. Cause I know I did about how you can, potentially work to educate. Um, did you also have, you know, throughout that educational process, were there any times gaining groups of the, the players like, Hey, you know what, you know, my friends at these schools, they're not doing this and they're more successful just because again, I know our listeners out there, they have situations like that. They, they talk about it, um, you know, on, on the site, has that happened and how do you handle any of those situations with your athletes? And if not, I mean, that's awesome. More power to you.
3: Yeah. So no, I really don't face that problem ever. Um, and and part of it is because of the uh, culture that we've instilled and the culture that has been in place for the 16 years that I've been here. Myself and the head coach, who is actually at uh, Texas A&M now, he left a year ago, uh, the former head coach, we were very much on the same wavelength as far as culture development, as far as the standards and expectations of the program. And so I couldn't have been put into a better situation. And that's really what should go back to the first question I think you asked about how have you been at some place so long? It was because the head coach and I saw eye to eye and had the same standards expectations across the board for the program of where the program needed to go. And that's where you see a lot of problems with, um, with people moving in our field. It's because the head coach and the performance coach strength and conditioning don't see eye to eye and it's continually butting heads. And sometimes you have to you you have to make exceptions or find another job in a way. But that is why I was able to stay in place for so long is because of that. And because of those standards, expectations, and the culture we set, we don't have athletes that come in here and say, "Hey, I want to do this, this, and this." or um, I don't believe in what we're doing. My buddy's doing this. I saw this on social media. I really never run into that problem. and and I would attribute attribute some of that the fact that we educated him early on when I would come in and I would give him all those, you know, educational talks to, to emphasize why we're doing what we're doing so that we didn't have any backlash against it. You know, I, I really don't face that problem at all.
1: No, that's awesome. And is this, so you teed up the CVAS question I was going to ask you about was that head coach, the same one that you talked about asked you, why are all strength coaches so bitter? Yes, that was the exact, yes. Same one. So for anybody that's listening now that was not at CVAS, if you could, you know, say that story again, because I think, you know, I know it hit home with me and some sure. of my other friends that were there. They definitely, you know, took notes on that.
3: Yeah. So this was uh, my second or third year at uh, at TCU here. And I walked into the uh, baseball staff's office on a Saturday before practice at, uh, in the fall. Football was on the road. I didn't travel with football at that time um, or that, that Saturday, that particular Saturday. And so had a Saturday off, or or no, let me rephrase this question. We had a recruit coming in on Saturday. This was during the week. I'm sorry, I I screwed this up a little bit. We had a recruit coming in on Saturday. During the week, I walk into the office and uh, our head coach says, hey, we got a recruit that's gonna be here on Saturday. I need you in here at 9 a.m. Talk to this kid. And I didn't say anything, but I showed it in my body language. And he snapped at me and he was like, "You know, why are all strength coaches so jaded? And there was a few more choice words in there than that, but I was like, I don't know what the hell is this guy talking about? And he's like, every strength coach I have ever worked with is jaded. They're a pain in the ass that hate that that hates their job, that hates life, and act like you. And I was like, man, I walked out of the office, um, bitch to friends, bitch to colleagues. And then I realized like this guy was right because my attitude, my energy towards something that I love, which is developing human beings, developing athletes through the uh, vehicle of strength and conditioning. I love it. I was portraying the attitude and energy of a lot of my colleagues that I had basically been around because what I had come up in strength and conditioning and a lot of my current colleagues at the time were traditional strength coaches. I I don't know what to call it, but your traditional old school strength coaches that were like F the staff. F administration. Everybody's out to get us. They all hate us. We don't get paid enough. We get overworked. And all these thoughts and feelings that, that really, you know, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches have. And I realized I was letting their energy, their attitude reflect in me to my athletes and coaching staff. And it was from that moment on that I realized I had to change. I had to be somebody different. I couldn't do that anymore. And really, what it was was if I was going to go anywhere in this field, especially with um, TCU baseball, the 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 head coach at the time, it was going to have to it was going to have to be me separating myself from all the traditional strength and conditioning you know um, thoughts and feelings that I had grown up in. And so that was the moment that I switched, and and uh, it was a it was a it was a life changing moment for me. And then on top of that, you know, the other big thing that helped give me authority for all the listeners out there with social media, it was being a positive influence on social media and just using it at the time to educate because my coaching staff saw that they read the stuff that I was putting out. The administration here saw that I, uh, I retweeted an article one time by, uh, Oh, who was it? Uh, let's see. Um, I can't remember. Worked in administration, you know, he's a big time baseball strength coach. Uh, Anyway, he wrote an article, I believe, that uh, talked about how strength coaches are undervalued, underappreciated, and how you can create, you know, more of these things for yourself. And I retweeted it and and wrote a little thing on it. And our athletic director was like, hey, I just saw your article. Want to talk to you about this. Uh, I want to see how we can be, you know, we can create change in in this field for you guys. So just something like that, like these people are watching. And so it helped to give me authority um, probably more than anything else. I continually educated him in staff meetings, but it was when I had social media and I started gathering a following and, and the snowball kind of started rolling that, these, that people around me started considering me as, as, uh, as the authority a little bit. And so that helped tremendously.
1: To, before we go into the, the social media side or, or any of the um, the fact that you wrote a book, do you also have to present and educate at an even higher level, whether it be senior level and at like all staff meetings? Because some of, I know, our uh, athletic assistant athletic directors do that. Um, and if so, what is your advice on how to, you know, again, put that hat on and manage that room or manage donors? Because I know um you know fundraising has become something that these assistant ad positions are doing
3: yeah so i haven't done it uh to a large degree yet i do with our administrators um it's the same way it's it's it really it's educating them but it's educating them a little bit differently it's it's uh, educating them on the importance of honestly it's it's advocating for our staff members a lot it's advocating with the sport coaches on our staff members um what I probably do more of is, is just that: advocate for our staff um, to try to get raises, to to try to uh, change titles and things like that. Um, it's very early on in my tenure, as far as a director. Now, you know, I've, I think I've been in this role officially overseeing everything now for right at a year. Um, but yes, it's educating the uh, the uh, administration. It just you just go about it differently, right? It's not they don't care about the the principles behind your speed work right <laughs> they care about the things of 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 like here's why i need money for this technology here's why um here's why this coach needs to get a bump in pay or we need to change his title and restructure the department um it's those types of things to try to advocate and elevate our coaching staff versus versus like you know we've been talking about the strength and conditioning principles they don't they don't care about that stuff right And um you know, ideally, this field needs to move towards where you have a performance coach that oversees multiple departments: um, psychology, um, performance, strength and conditioning. What I call what we call performance now, but strength and conditioning, the nutritional side. You know, whether it's sports medicine, somebody that oversees all those departments so that you have a holistic vision moving forward and not these siloed siloed approaches. And that's something that. That's where we're trying to educate the administration, so that we eliminate people that really have no, um, they have no, like, reason to be. What's the word I'm looking for here? I, I can't I can't think today. It's like I got CTE going on. <laughs> they, no, they, no, they shouldn't be overseeing our department, right? Because you have administrators everywhere that have never. I've never trained an athlete have never worked as a coach that oversees strength and conditioning right and so the goal is to um the goal is to get people where they can value and and um, judge or or review how strength coaches are actually doing right because they've been in that setting they've been in that scenario and that's really what what the ultimate goal is 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 to create the uh, vision for administrations so that we create a position of of a performance uh, administrator that oversees all these different departments so that we can have a holistic vision going forward so that sports medicine and strength and conditioning understand the the rehab process. Those processes are standardized so that you know exactly where your role is, where, where that happens, because that is a big, big, big missing piece in our field a lot of times, right? Silos again. The strength coach thinks he should be doing PT and rehab stuff over here and it pisses off the ATCs and you get this back and forth battle a lot of times between um, between staffs that are that think they each need to do this, and they're not working together. And so it's trying to create that holistic vision. that's that's what it is.
1: How do you handle that, you know, that exact need that you talked about for collaboration, but respecting it in an authentic way, but also understanding that, like you said, people may have, other jobs that they have to do during the day. So they don't have the ability to be like, Hey, all right, everybody's going to live together at this time, or, Hey, we're going to go ahead and learn about this together. How, in your opinion, does that get resolved?
3: Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not an easy one for, for us. It is um, it's trying to um, create the relationship as best as you can with the other departments. Um, And I think that I think when you have your performance coaches, we have a very, very fortunate situation in that all of our staff basically has a big sport and then one other Olympic sport in there as well. So, um, you know, I've got baseball, I train rifle as well. Um, The uh, office next to me, Coach Larson, has women's basketball and equestrian. And so when we only have a few sport responsibilities, it's trying to get that coach to go and be involved with the sport as much as possible. I talk about this, talked about this at CVAX as well. The field is going to where strength coaches are very specialized. And so we want you to be a practice. I want you to know what the hell is going on at practice. I want you to know the demands that are happening, what your coach's expectations and standards are at practices. And when you, when you you when you're a part of the team in every facet, you have relationships with your athletic trainer because you guys are working hand in hand. And so that's the thought process we want is I need you to be involved with the team at every level, not just in the weight room, because when I started 20 years ago, it was, hey, soccer team will be up there at uh, 215 to lift. I did a, you know, mobility session, quick mobility session, warm up, we're off to the lift, send you guys out of here. Next team's rolling in, right? You got nine other teams that you have to train. They go out and do speed work, conditioning, agility, whatever they were doing. With their coaching staff, and you had no idea what was going on. You were in the weight room. You ran it like it was basically an assembly line. They just team, 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 team. You didn't do anything outside of that. Now, strength and conditioning coaches are becoming very specialized. That's the future. Um, we have a great situation with only a few sports per coach. So go out and be a part of that team as much as you can, so that you build, build relationships with all the sports staff, the coaches, the the uh, sports medicine, and that gives us the ability to be able to bridge those gaps a little bit better, in my opinion, when that time comes.
1: We had uh, Justin Kavanaugh on the show this week, and he talked about the fact that, uh, as you talk about specialized strength coaches, he said now, today, more than ever, you don't have to be a former athlete of that sport, and now you're working in it. Um, you know, he obviously said this pros and cons to it, right? Like, kids that wanted to be in a certain sport, now they can, but also the the downside is maybe you didn't play it. So you don't know exactly what's going on. I'd like to hear your two cents on it in in terms of that specialization and, you know, almost the fact that you could work with any sport. Is it good? Is it bad?
3: Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. Um, I was a guy, I played high school baseball. I didn't play college baseball. I went and worked for the Anaheim angels for two years and got the job at TCU because I had been in professional baseball, but played college football. It was a football baseball role here. And that's, that's why it was a perfect fit for me, but I didn't come from a baseball, you know, a college baseball athlete background. And that actually helped me when I got to pro baseball, because at the time, um, pro baseball was, it was, uh, it was an interesting place as a strength coach. Um, I'll give you an example. We had 15 machines in a room and the workout, Training session for the uh, athletes, the the pro baseball guys, was uh, one set of 15 to 20 on every machine. Just yeah. go down the row, go down this row, and it was like tricep extensions, right? The the old preacher curl tricep extension, tri, or bicep curl, crunch machine. That's what the workout was. And so I came into this situation and had very, very outside the box thoughts about what baseball should be speed training, you know, the the power stuff. I was I came from a background of football and track and field and everything I had read and studied was eastern bloc, soviet research, all that stuff. And so my thoughts were walking into a professional baseball organization were so far away from what baseball was, that actually helped me. That helped me early on in my career a ton and that's part of what I guess um gave me the um gave me the soapbox to stand on was that people were like well this isn't how baseball is done and we were we were training in season we were lifting on game days and so that was a big big piece of it in that I didn't have the preconceived notions walking into it because I had been a baseball guy right and so that helped me tremendously now on the flip side there's times when you know you 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 get guys that weren't a part of sport that kind of have no feel there's there's you know, in in baseball, you you have to have some feel in the locker room, in the dugout, um, and so you do miss that sometimes with guys that with with uh, with coaches. I shouldn't say guys, but men and women that haven't been around the sport sometimes they lack feel, and that has to be learned a little bit. But um, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely fine that you weren't in the sport to train it now.
1: Uh, another question on that is in terms of this specialized you know strength coaches. I personally feel like there's a starting growing trend where maybe they're only good enough at that sport because everything to them has to be just sport specific. Are you, are, are we as a field losing the ability to, to kind of coach anybody in any setting if you had to? Yeah.
3: That's the one downside of it is you get, you get tied into one thing and, you know, if you don't have a great, uh, if you don't have a great network around you to learn and, you know, places like strength, uh, strength coach network to go, see other stuff then yeah i think you get tied into your uh your your thoughts a little bit too much and i think it limits you this is why i recommend and this is tough but i recommend to all of our interns our young coaches i say the best thing that you can do is go to a a small school mm-hmm. where you have nine other teams now the problem is is that you end up having to run the weight room a little bit too much as that uh Assembly line where you have to bring a team in, they're out. Bring a team in, they're out. You might not get, you might not get to participate in practices as much, but you get so much more out of out of time management, out of building efficient systems, understanding how to um, manipulate the space and the equipment that you have. I was a GA, uh, an athlete and a GA at Missouri State. We had six racks. We had, you know, two and a half med balls. the interns here we have a room downstairs with probably 90 to 150 med balls right they have access to anything that they want and i'm like when you leave here and go somewhere else and you're actually paid to coach they're not going to have this they're not going to have 12 six pound med balls and 10 four pounders or you know 1510s you're going to have a 12 a 6 and a broken 20 that's spitting out you know spitting out sand and you're going to have to figure out how to make this stuff work. And the best thing you can do is go somewhere where you don't have everything, because then you really, really learn not only how to coach, but how to program efficiently around your equipment, your 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 space, your time. And so I think the best thing young coaches can do is go somewhere that's not a power five with access to everything.
1: All right, let's change. Uh, like I said, we, you, you teased it before, but um, you know, obviously you have a presence on on social media for strength and conditioning coaches, you also wrote a book. Um, I don't know if other people have read it or what the other people feel about it. Um, it's in our internship curriculum. So it's a well-known book, uh, where I'm at. So talk about how you were able to do that. Um, a B what inspired you to do it and C, how did you still keep the main thing, the main thing and coach while doing, you know, those other things.
3: Yeah. So, uh, It came out of necessity and I didn't have to create anything. So this is what it was. I've for 16 years, really for 20 years, since I've been in strength and conditioning, I had a foundation program. These are the foundational movements that I want my athletes to know and learn. This is how you learn how to lift because I was a young strength coach. Like we talked about at Missouri State, I had a lot of female teams. Many of these female athletes had never stepped foot in a weight room. They didn't know anything about holding the barbell at the time. And so I taught these foundational movements. This is what you have to know so that we can advance in strength and conditioning over the next two or three, four years that you're here. That's all it was. So I've always had this program around. I got so many emails from baseball coaches when I got to TCU about, hey, send me a program. Will you send me what you're doing? Or what should I do with my high school kids? How would you program this? And First off, I can't send you the program because, you know, you have no idea what these exercises movements are. I'm not going to do that. And so it was, just a continually, it was just a continual beating of what should I do with my athletes? What should I do with my athletes from high school coaches? And so I knew the need was there. And so, you know, I, it took me 14 months to write the book. And I would say 11 of those months were staring at a screen. Trying to like figure out what I should say without telling somebody what to do, how you know? Because how do you write, how do you tell somebody what the workout is? There's so much context that goes into it, and I was like, man, I don't want to tell everybody the secrets. I don't want to give them all the secrets of what we do and how to implement this. So how can I sneakily type this thing up so that you really don't know what we do, but you kind of do? And then I heard um, a famous he was a famous baseball coach at LSU that had won multiple national titles back in the uh, 80s. And he was implementing sports psychology at the time when nobody else was. And he gave away the program. He wrote it and gave it away. And I heard him do an interview and he said, you know, they said, coach, you're giving your program away. Everybody's gonna be beating at national championships now because you're giving them the secret stuff. And he's like, nobody else will run this the way that I run it. It doesn't matter what I give. Them. I'll tell them everything. Nobody will ever run this the way I run it because I run it unique to my my system, and it the light bulb went off and I was like, "That's it. That's absolutely it." And so the day I heard that, I started typing. I took a Saturday, and I might have wrote this in two Saturdays actually, but then you know the refining process, all that. I just started writing. When our kids step on campus the first day, I started writing. What we did here's the warm up. Here's what we do with them. Here's how we teach the front squat. I wrote it like verbatim from what we do. And that's it. And that was the easiest thing I ever did. I spent 11 or 12 months like smacking my face on a computer, not knowing what to write. How should I type this? How should I do this? And then I just was like, screw that. I'm just going to write this out. How we do it. And then I'll take it from there. I'll pull stuff out if I need to. I didn't pull anything out. And so you just have to do it. That's all it was. And how did I do it? I did it during baseball in season because we have... We have uh, lots of travel and downtime. Um, I used, uh, we got snowed in one time at Kansas, uh, at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. Couldn't take a flight out of Kansas City, so it took a nine hour bus ride home. And so I wrote probably three quarters of it on that, created some of the charts. <laughs> so baseball in uh, season is very, very helpful uh, for when I need to create a product. But that's how it's. it was just, tell people what we do. They're not gonna run it like I do. And it's so funny because I guarantee you, all your coaches out there that are thinking about putting out a product are having the same thoughts I, I am and that I don't want to tell people the secrets. I don't want to tell them what we do, how we structure this. BS, I'm telling you right now, that book has sold a whole bunch of copies and I get emails every day from coaches that say, hey, how do we how do we do this? How do we set up the program on Mondays? And I'm like, I literally put the work, I put the Excel spreadsheet in there. It's like the workout's in there. You don't, it's in there. That's telling you that they will not do it like you do it ever. I get that all the time. Hey, we don't know how to, you know, how do you do five sets of five on the front squad? Is it this, is it? And you're like, no, it's just, they won't do it like you do it. Nobody will be able to copy what you have. So just put
1: it out there. I've heard Boyle say the exact same thing. And um, I feel the exact same way as you how about your ability you know what was your what was your secret to to beating the algorithm and growing a following on social media
3: man i don't know anything about the algorithm i didn't even know algorithms existed until <laughs> until kier started talking about that um all it was was consistent it was consistent education and so i tried to just try to post daily really and i talked about what we were doing and it was I, I tried to keep it all positive at the time, which, from hearing Keir talk about the algorithm, is actually the worst thing that you can do. But I didn't want to represent the university myself or, or our baseball program in a negative light, and so I was—I uh, felt fortunate that they were allowing me to do that and use that as a platform to grow in a way my brand. And so I wasn't going to embarrass anybody with anything that I said and put on social media. But the only thing it was was consistent education. That's that's how it's got to this point—consistent education. And it is really freaking hard, man. It's really hard to keep up with social media and to create content and to, and, and, and to do that on a consistent basis. That's where people fail is they can't do it consistently months, 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 years, years, years. They can't keep up with it.
1: Um, You know, like I said, you're, you're in season. So first of all, you're in season, we're going to expect movement over Max's part two uh, this summer, because you're going to be, you know, traveling yeah. and hopefully you know there was just not, uh there was the ice storm in dallas not too long ago yeah. like you should have been writing
3: oh yeah you should have got at least
1: part two halfway done um That's, so we're gonna... i mean
3: it's funny you say that because that is actually on the list for uh it's a release in the fall would be the advances to uh moving over max's yeah
1: see you know you heard it here first everybody um So we'll let you go, uh, go ahead and just let everybody know where they can, you know, continue to follow you more on social media. We're going to put it in the show notes, but excuse me, that way people know where they can continue to learn from you.
3: Yeah. Everything's going to be, uh, Zach Dakin basically. So Twitter, Instagram, those are the two big platforms. Those are at Zach Dakin. Zachdakin.com is where you can, you know, find all the products, um, any of the blog stuff that I post. So,
1: yeah. Appreciate you, man. Go uh, go about the rest of your day and have a good
3: one.
2: Yeah, thank you. So uh, my name is Jennifer Gibson, and I uh, I go by Jen, um, and I'm a performance dietitian and exercise physiologist. Um, been at the game for about uh, 17 years now. Uh, Ten of those was in the Olympic world. Um, I'm originally from Canada, so spent five years working in the Canadian Olympic system and then um, got headhunted down to Team USA, spent five years in the Olympic world down there. Um, and then got recruited into the NFL um, and spent the last seven years uh, as sports science coordinator and sport dietitian for the Chicago Bears. Um, Throughout that entire time I've done a ton of fun little consulting projects, worked in women's pro tennis for six years, um, worked with the New Orleans Saints as well, um, a bunch of MLS teams and some NBA clients. Um, And now just in the last uh, season of my life just kind of decided to Start my own practice, start my own private consulting business, Um, it's called Lead Eats, Inc. And just trying to take all those years of working with the most elite um, sport clients and and kind of start my own gig.
1: I mean, so 10 years in the Olympics and then you got headhunted from the Olympics in Canada to the Olympics here and then to the NFL. Like, Talk about that, that's unbelievable
2: yeah so it's i mean as you know in our in our world and in sport it's kind of like who you know and who knows you and um in the olympic world it's a lot about uh looking for other people with olympic experience and oftentimes that's really just um looking globally so my sport background personally is combat sports and so the u.s olympic committee was looking for a combat sport dietitian um which physiologically is like the most fun population to work with to work with weight cutting and and getting that right so Uh, they had hunted me down and um, it was it was a great population it was my passion kind of area to work in and then as you know it's just kind of you start to meet people and um, I had written I had been in a few articles um, in the media and somehow somebody from the New Orleans Saints invited me to come and kind of evaluate their their sport nutrition program and physiology kind of program and there wasn't one and so that kind of parlayed into consulting for them and then that parlayed into somebody from that team leaving to become the GM of the bears and recruiting me over there. And, um, it was a fun time in the NFL. I actually left to go for the, for the schedule. Cause I was like, wow, I don't have to be on a plane 250 days sure. a year. I could I just get to go every other, you know, every other weekend for a night in a charter. This sounds awesome. So it was definitely a fun opportunity to build a program from like literally nothing. And, uh, and just to get to experience that world for a really long time.
1: That's awesome. Um, how did you have roles where sports science coordinator and dietitian? How, how does that work? Yeah. Out? Like, How do you handle the two worlds?
2: Yeah. So for me, that's all I've always had that dual role because my, my education was um, I did a, a traditional, you know, bachelor of science in nutrition dietetic um, internship, worked kind of in the dietetic world. Um, But then when I went back to do my masters, I I did a pure 100% ex-phys masters, like a separate masters. It wasn't a combined uh, program with nutrition. And so um, basically did the, like a a, a pure, you know, applied physiology stream, worked in a physiology lab when I was doing that. And so that kind of lended itself into the duality of my practice over the years where, like I say to some of my interns, I can... I can go from like, you know, writing a menu for a team to analyzing GPS reports. And my brain's just been trained to go both ways that way. And so it's just a byproduct (laughs) of how I came up in the system.
1: I mean, that's impressive that you could, you know, be doing both, but at the same time, it's probably beneficial because if you're working with strength and conditioning coaches or sport coaches and it's different times of the year, then you can interpret what the data means for the amount of workload that they're doing. and then. You know, try to properly prescribe the nutrition that would help them with that certain phase. Is that things you were doing?
2: Yeah, yeah, and and really, I think like just having a sound understanding of applied physiology and testing and how you can kind of incorporate that, um, and that that it all kind of we all kind of work in these areas where there's kind of crossover. You know, so if I'm responsible for what's going into my athlete's body. i should be able to be able to measure i should be able to measure that i should be able to know how to use an rmr cart or measure vo2 max or um, measure sweat sodium um, measure sweat sodium from the set or from the sweat or understand lab values Um, and then again work at those you know external and internal load measurement tools and understand how that impacts Um, not only caloric expenditure, but stress on the body and and within the training cycle, how that fits in. So I feel like it's just a natural connection and whether or not you truly practice like how I have in both worlds, um, it's really important for both sides to kind of have a good understanding of how they operate.
1: You mentioned it with the hydration and the sweat rate. How, for our listeners out there that maybe don't have as high level You know education as you do what would be some of the best recommendations to measure hydration and sweat rate testing
2: yeah so the, the most important thing to remember is that um first of all every single athlete is an individual when it comes to this so if you're working in a program and you and you're giving blank um recommendations or like generic recommendations for everybody then it's pretty much the same thing as telling everybody on your team that they need to eat a 200 a 2,000 calorie diet like you see kind of you know recommended from the fda you know um so remember for hydration if you're in that position where you're just giving like oh you need to have two liters of water a day like you're really really missing the mark because hydration um, status and, and, and losses are very individually determined and usually just set genetically. So um, a, the other thing to remember is that measuring it is, is a comprehensive approach. And so I, I, I teach, I've taught a few lectures, it's called 300, 360 hydration assessment. And so what that involves is you have to get a measure of fluid loss, which you can easily do through, re- through a pre and post weigh-in situation. Ideally, you want to be able to measure what's been consumed, but you don't necessarily have to do that. And you really want to make sure you're trying to standardize the the clothing and what the players are wearing before and after, because you've probably experienced this too. You get a guy that weighs out with his sweaty gear on or even just some extra pads and you've messed your whole calculation up. But in addition to that, um, that's just telling you about the fluid loss, right? We're not actually looking at the composition of that fluid. And what's what's going on with that athlete's sweat, and is there, are they truly a salty sweater, and can we can we do a sodium intervention if it's needed for them? So that's where the next level of that is, and what I've done in different sports, different ways, but you kind of would potentially do sweat set twes, sweat testing with your entire squad, or maybe just your high risk guys, whereby you would put a sweat patch on them, collect a sweat sample, analyze it using a. If there's some really nice easy devices you can use for that um i use the laqua twin hariba system get a measure of sweat sodium and then from there can determine again where you, you can then kind of determine not only how much fluid does this athlete need to consume but then should i add additional electrolytes to that uh fluid and in what amount um and then on top of all of that the third level of hydration assessment if we really want to nerd out is looking at the, the sure. physiology of, of heat and the impact of that on your athlete and remembering that um, part of why we sweat is because we're creating internal heat. Um, and and that heat can be exacerbated by um, external heat like the sun or humid conditions. And so there's interventions you can you can partake to control that, right? And so that would be things like ice vests or, or dipping the hands in... Um, in, in ice water or using some of those hand cooling devices, or even just, uh, we did we used to do with the football players, just ice towels around their head and neck to cool the actual uh, thermostat down. And so if you do one and two, but forget the third, you're battling a physiological response that you're, you know what I mean? You can drink all the water in the world, but if the person's still overheating from a core temperature sensor, core temperature sense, um, That's another piece. So it's always a reminder that like, you know, we can go really deep and I've gone really deep and it's really, really fun uh, if you're into physiology. Um, But just remember, if you're at that level where you're kind of just saying, everyone drink two liters a day, like we got it, we can go deeper than that
1: so i do want to go deeper with that and as you were talking about it one of the like we do i've done some sweat rate testing with a company before and we'll do that we'll put the patch on their arm we'll go through a training session very similar to get it and then we'll analyze it this is how much fluid this is how much of it is you know sodium so i'm, I'm sticking with you on all that the yeah. thing that made the first thing i want to ask about is you mentioned the the you know the temperature in which you do it so if you do that sweat rate testing on a day that's maybe hotter, more humid, are you, first question, is that going to be invalid data than if it was just an outlier in terms of how hot it was?
2: That's a really, really good question. Um, the The short answer is not really, because um, while that environmental temperature will impact the fluid loss, so how much sweat they actually produce overall, the sweat sodium concentration is, is very, very much kind of just are set to who you are as an individual. So um, it can be a little bit modified by like if the athletes having a really, really high salt diet, or if they're having a really, really low salt diet, and they make a huge change. But truthfully, that sweat sodium is kind of going to be what it's going to be for you as an individual. So um, an environmental uh, stressor may would not necessarily impact your results for the sweat sodium piece. Yeah.
1: Okay. And then the other question that I have for you now is I have some, I would call it at best, anecdotal research out there. A friend of mine who who nerds out on this stuff too um, was reading some research about cooling down. And the bad way to cool Mm -hmm. athletes down is putting towels around your neck because it now tells the brain that you're not hot, even though the rest of your body is hot. Is there any validity to it? Because what he was saying is you're supposed to actually ice like around the wrists and the ankles because now that's peripheral from the brain and it's gonna help you cool yourself down faster because now warm blood is going to the brain. Therefore the warm blood tells the brain, Hey, we're still hot, we still need to get cooled down.
2: Yeah, that's a real that's really fascinating. Um, you're like we're we're going right down my favorite alley. So like yeah, is going down into the research about like the location of your cooling and if, if it's like, like location specific. And so um, I don't know the answer to that right now. What I do know is that when we have when we have had players that have had kind of um, the cooling towels around their head or neck, there's also kind of a psychological component of them calming down a little bit. That's also helping from a, like an emotional psychological perspective, you know, Um, And for us in football, it was just more, it was just more convenient because they have gloves on a lot of times if they're, if they're catching balls and stuff. And so it was harder for us to, to use the hands. Um, But what I will say about it, and and I've studied uh, core temp really interest in interesting ways, especially with athletes making weight and, and kind of watched, um, we, I used to do these weird studies where I'd I'd throw an internal core temperature sensor into a guy cutting weight, and then we would we would do different interventions different cooling interventions to try to get them their core temp down and one of the observations we made um was that it took a it took quite some time for the body to actually have a reaction to the cooling stimulus because it kind of takes time to start cooking it's almost like an oven it, it takes time for the oven to to cool down too um and so uh, yeah, so I, do, I so it's interesting. I mean, I'd love to like, dig into that physiology a little bit about it being localized to, to the brain and the ha- versus the hands. And um, it's a really fascinating question. So I'm excited to learn, read and learn a little bit more about that because this is definitely a nerd out area for me.
1: Uh, speaking of nerd out area, what was the biggest thing that you would then nerd out with on the data analysis side? Because, you know, it is a hot button topic and our listeners, you know, ton of them have catapults. So what has been the biggest nerd out moment for you within the technology side? We kind of talked about them.
2: <laughs> oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, to be honest with you, what I've, the, the most interesting challenge for me working in, in, in that side of things has been as a person who understands data and going deep into the data, we can get really, really busy with like, getting deeper and, and doing stats and looking at correlations and, and seeing if we can find these little connections to things like Oh, uh, you know, um, you know, previous injury and, and what's what's is it kind I develop a risk assessment based on that and, and use all my data and kind of come up with risks, you know, risk scenarios and all these fun, like scientific things. Um, and, and within us in our nerd world, we can really geek out on that and spend time, you know, this is my model and, and we can assign almost a met value to to, you know, to our to our load. And then we can we can prescribe based on Mets, I mean, we can get really geeky about it. And, um, but one of the one of the most important learning things that I've been geeking out on, honestly, is that ha- like, 90% of my coaches don't care about any of that. Um, all they want to know is, is like the bottom line and how it impacts them. And so part of what I really geeked out on as a side geek project, was trying to find different ways to present the data in a way that the coaches would absorb it and take it and value it. And that that in and of itself is a project because um, for me, I I had a like almost like a repeating year uh, evaluation with the coaches to ask them like, was this helpful? What do you want to see? is this displayed properly? How are you getting these reports, you know, and we migrated to a system whereby we created our own internal system that was on the scouting database where the coaches were already going to watch film and integrating the data with that point of contact they were always interfacing with, you know, and I, I had started off at the beginning with like handwritten reports on their desk with like magic marker and you know, all that fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then all I, I've talked about this before, but we ended up migrating all of the data into a percent game uh, for everything as a metric. And that was something a lot of coaches understood better um, than a, maybe just a generic load number. So if I said to them, he did hundred for 150% of his, his volume for a game, they could process that. So for me, it's been an interesting game of just understanding the coach and understanding the position coaches. Cause they're not the same in terms of what they want and what they understand. And then maybe I was crazy, but I had a different way to display it for different people based on what their needs were. And to me, that was a fun project just to learn how best to get communicate that.
1: The fact that you've been able to do that and you were doing it at the National Football League level, what piece of advice would you give to our coaches who might be thinking, I'm bashing my head against the wall, trying to connect and relate to my coaches, but I just heard her talk about it. What, what was your secret?
2: Talking to them. <laughs> that sounds really basic. Uh, but it happens all the time where we just make these assumptions and we don't really sit down and talk. And we, um, we actually don't educate them either. And so what, something I used to do every year was I'd sit down with the new crop of coaches. Because as you know, inevitably these, these people change. And I would just present to them what it is and what it's not and how it can help and, and almost like do a little bit of a sales job every year. But but realize that we are support staff and we orbit around the sun, which is the coaching staff. And That's a good one. Yeah, but it's true. And so realizing no, that... No, I know. That's that, why i laugh. Yeah. Like,
1: I'm not mad. I'm just laughing because yeah. you hit the nail on the head. Yeah.
2: So uh, if you take that posture and realize where you are in the galaxy, then... Um, feeling success is being able to be a part of your orbit, you know, and, and doing and for some coaches, it's more and for some coaches is less And you can sit back and nerd out with your friends and get your fix that way. But true success is having that coaching staff just like value your what you're presenting to them, you know what I mean? And if it's just speed, max speed all day long, and they love it. Yes, you feel embarrassed when you talk to your data analytics friends, but guess what? If they're valuing it and using it, who cares? That's just my opinion.
1: No, you're right. It's it's. Tr- I mean, like it gets back to the core of like you just kind of got to kill your ego and, and check your ego at the door, so that way you can, you can serve the people that you're supposed to actually serve, right? Like.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my mantras always, always, and I had it in my office, and I have it here now in my home office is, is. Um, you know and, and it actually comes from the olympic world the olympic world very very much adopts this model and it's team first and it's how can i serve this team and in maybe it's how can you serve the club and if you truly truly adopt that and you're like how how am i going to help the club today how am i going to help these players today and if you truly ascribe to that like in your core fabric you can't go wrong Um, but a lot of people are out the other way. It's how do I serve myself today? How do I look good today? How do I, um, posture myself with the head coach at this meeting today? Um, so if you're putting ego first, then usually it's not going to result in some good outcomes.
1: Yeah. Let's dive down the, the Olympic side rabbit hole and, you know, working with stopwatch sports, how different was that from a um, nutrition standpoint, and then also from any of the sports tech that maybe you were using?
2: Yeah. So again, it kind of just depended on the, the sport, right? So, uh, there's certainly ones that are timed and it's a pretty finite end and, and, and those are wonderful to work with, <laughs> to be honest. Hmm. Because you can really measure success very, uh, you know, very in a finite way and and oftentimes the periodization and training plans for those types of sports are on point. And there's nice beautiful uh, training camps at altitude and and we do all these fun things and we monitor a lot of physiology and then we can actually time it all all along the way and it's great and so those sports are awesome to work with, to be honest. Um, and then you get your sports where it's it's a, it's an art, you know. Like a, when I was with combat sports, you know, judo, wrestling, taekwondo, boxing, it's it's it, There's a lot more nuance to those things. And so, to me, what I've always just ascribed to is just like really getting deep into the physiology of the sport, and then understanding it, and then understanding not only the physiological demands, but then the second layer is understanding the cultural demands of the sport, and how does this thing operate? how do I navigate within the, the culture of this sport and the coaching staff and all that stuff and then trying to marry those two into effective interventions that are going to help them. At the Olympic level, though, there's, um, it's, a, it's a weird word, but there's definitely more of a desperation of the athlete because oftentimes they've, they've literally given this, they've given their whole life up, literally, to, to follow this dream. And so the, um, I had a lot of athletes that were on food stamps I had a lot of athletes mm-hmm. that just basically put their family and everything on hold because they were trying to chase the dream of making an Olympic team. And and frankly, that desperation um, really helps uh, them to kind of buy in to working with practitioners that are going to help them get better. And so uh, it's actually a really lovely population to work with because they're really, really um, committed and eager and they want to be the best in the world. and if you're crazy enough to chase that goal, then you usually are crazy enough to kind of jump on board with fun physiology experiments and, and ways to improve your game.
1: <clears throat> For any of our listeners out there that are like, oh man, you know, maybe she's working with new teams because you said it really depends on the sport and they're working with a new sport and they're trying to figure out how to assimilate. What were some of the best things that you did to understand the sport and to then get the ultimate buy-in with the athletes and coaches?
2: Yeah, so I mean, for me in the beginning, it was like, again, getting into my physiology understanding of the sport. If it's a sport you've never worked with before, you know, um, you got to just understand the sport. So literally, I would sit down and just read about the sport. How is it played? What are the what are the um, you know, typical measures of success for somebody in a sport? And then it was just be spending a lot of time at practice and observing how that goes developing relationships with the coaches and just asking questions you know can I can I just have a look at your training schedule can you tell me a little bit about your training philosophy Um, a lot of times you know coaches are happy to answer those questions especially if you kind of are asking them about them you know like who doesn't want to talk about themselves Mm -hmm. so it's kind of just trying to gain respect by by being curious and trying to understand their philosophy and and being very respectful of their philosophy because um, I've worked a lot in soccer for example and (laughs) Man, you get a coach from Italy, you get a coach from Denmark, and you get a coach from the United States, and their philosophies on training and how they're going to do it are totally different. Are there, is there a right one? No, right? Because there's winners in all those places. So you can't go in there and be like, this is crazy, you know, look at this volume, like, "Ah," you know, because guess what, you're not the one that's been hired to make that call. Um, You're hired to understand the call and to understand the physiological implications of that call and then to buffer and assist around it. So for me, it's just like being very respectful to the the coach and their model and then trying to, like I used to say sometimes with wrestling, because they always have overtraining, like for real overtraining, three days, like you almost like just are there to see, okay, when's the blood coming out and like how good are my band-aids right now, you know? sometimes it's just triage and first aid, but but at least you're providing something, you know?
1: No, for sure. Um, Here you talk about all this. One of the things that I want to know from the diverse background, whether it was, you know, Olympics here in Canada or the uh, NFL, without naming names, obviously. What are some of the worst practices that you've seen or the bastardization of nutrition in sport? (laughs) <laughs> because I want, I know what I think it is, but I want to hear like a true expert's opinion.
2: Okay, okay. Uh, I won't say I, I'm not going to say any teams or anything. I've had a few situations, so there's a lot of cultural norms, you know, with some sports. Um, I remember working with a team once and getting in trouble because I canceled the hot dogs at halftime. So that was one that I, I literally, and then the funny part was the person who yelled at me about it was the team doctor. So I got yelled at by the team doctor because I got rid of hot dogs at halftime for an elite, elite team. Uh, and I, as the dietitian, I made that call cause I was like, why on earth are we ordering hot dogs at halftime? You know, this doesn't make any sense. My job is to oversee this. I cannot sign off on this, you know? Um, that was definitely one of those moments in my life. Um, I think the other thing too, and I used to have a saying in the NFL, like, you know, um, I used to call it on your own time and on your own dime because I would have requests from players to, to order like deep dish pizza or, you know, um, like any sort of fried foods or like basically carnival foods, you know, and our coach, our coaches have this fast food Friday cultural thing. And, so I would kind of like always offer both, you know. You kind of have the fun and the and the healthy, but um, I know that some people kind of really dive into that really hard, you know. And they and they almost make the food situation a popularity contest. Like the more crap I can serve, the better the players are going to like me, you know. Um, my my mantra was always on your own time and on your own dime. If I'm being paid as the team dietitian and it's my job to be responsible for our budget for that, um, that I can't. I can't spend the cl- I, again if i'm putting the club first and i'm putting the player first as my as my anchor point uh, i would say on your own time and on your own dime you go you go buy it but i can't with good conscience spend the club's money on this so physiologically with my con with the combat sports i mean you name it uh every bad practice you can think of my, my one boxing athlete i'll never forget i had just done a whole session on you know The physiology of weight cutting, ways to do it properly. You know, I was all up there puffing my chest thinking I was the smartest person in the room. And on the way back, we were walking back and he's like, I don't know why you got to make it so complicated, man. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, if I want to lose weight, I just don't eat. Problem solution. And he just walked away.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Why did you make it so complicated? Like, what is wrong with you?
2: He's like, I don't know why I, say, I don't, I just don't eat. That's it. And, it. and it was like one of those moments in my life where I was like, well, yeah, you're right. You know, like if I, if I literally took you all and put you in a cage and didn't feed you, it would happen. You know, it's going to happen. There's no uh, thyroid problems when that's the situation. Um, so, but it was one of those, again, it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, I got to remember who my population is and, and where they're coming from. That's a wake up call right there
1: what uh flip side what's been like you know best practices like holy cow i was really not expecting it to be this good for um you know these people reached out and i'm really impressed with how well they've
0: done it
2: yeah that's a really good question i think to be honest with you like not every single uh you know olympic sport is perfect but the when i worked for the u.s olympic committee and the canadian olympic committee what I really appreciated about those groups um, was that they were really on point with hiring like the very best at what they do. Um, And there was a very, they really, really, you know, it wasn't a buddy system hire, like sometimes we encounter, you know, in some situations, and they really, really um, tried to handpick some of the best practitioners in the world. And so a lot of the people that I worked with, I mean, all of them had PhDs, I was probably the only one that just had a master's. And I felt very inadequate with that. Um, But you know, working with I loved working with people that were like, way smarter than me, you know, Um, and definitely that comes with ego. uh, But we could all we all had respect for each other. And so that environment was really fruitful and really intellectually stimulating for me. And I know that's not necessarily like, you know, common everywhere you go to work with a, a lot of really intelligent and smart people who are the best at what they do. And so I appreciated that about working within the Olympic Committee and working for the, the uh, Canadian side is the staffing and the way that they really went about getting the best in the world um, really helped me develop and grow in a way that I never would have done if I had just been maybe in, in pro sport the whole time.
1: I have a question for you. What is going to be the best way to measure body composition for our listeners if they're like, oh, I have a Dexa or I have a Bod Pod? If somebody's got the two, which one should they use and why?
2: We we're going down a nerd topic for me. so.
1: um 100% let's do it. <laughs>
2: So I'm a level three anthropometrist with ISAC. So I've done like a lot of training in, in body comp and, and measurement and it's, it's definitely a passion area of mine. So the one thing I say to everybody is there's one gold standard for body composition and that's murder. Murder is the gold standard. Cause we murder you. We, we peel you like an orange and we measure you. And I say that to every one of my athletes, cause that's how actually Siri and all those equations were, were determined was through cadaver analysis. So the gold standard is murder. Everything after killing your athlete is a, is an estimation. And so um. you pick you pick your poison, right? You pick your poison. Every single um modality has error. It's you it's up to you as a practitioner to know the error and to control the error. And so for me when I was with the Olympic team, because I was on the road all the time, I can't take a bod pod with me. I can't take Um, uh, DEXA with me. So I did ISAC level one and level two skinfold assessment. Um, That was very practical. For me, I liked it because I didn't have to control for hydration or time of day or whatever. And my error was me as a measurer, right? My error was me, me versus me. And I took the ISAC course because it taught me a standardized technique. So every time I did my assessment, I did it the same way. When moving into the NFL situation, I can't do ISAC assessments on a hundred guys in the preseason. It's too time consuming. Um, And so for a while we used bod pod and then we moved to, to DEXA. Um, Both can work, but both have errors, you know? And so with, with the bod pod, we had to really control for, um, with the larger individuals, the eggs not made for my 320 pound alignment. It's just too, he, they got to stuff in there And, and all of the science behind bod pod is air displacement right um sorry i'm with my hands a lot in this i'm italian no you're good
1: i talk on my hands too Um, (laughs) but
2: like as you're
1: saying that i had a six five three fifty lineman in a bod pod the other day
2: yeah yeah and and they get in there but i would always worry because it's it's based on air displacement and and wasn't built for that size and so um you know and then we would have situations as you've probably experienced with players that had dreadlocks and, and big hair. And sometimes that would be being read as mass, right? And so you kind of have to really know those errors. Um, we had it too sometimes with the, the we would bring the bod pod w- with us to training camp and it would be hot in a hot room and that, and that heat and humidity would impact measurement. So you just have to kind of know that and then really control, 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 control. If you're gonna be using this thing as a serial testing tool you have to control if it's gonna be serial measurements. So controlling the time of day, controlling what they're wearing, controlling um, in some cases what they're drinking. Dexa's is fantastic, I've used it for a number of years. Um, we had a Norland system at the Bears because it had a big scanning table, so I didn't have to squash them in. Um, but if you have a gut full of food, it reads that as lean mass. So Dexa's really, really, uh, we would only use it in the morning, fasted, right? And then there's a time constraint because the measurement takes a little bit longer, depending on how big you are. Um, and so, yes, murder can't do. If you can't do murder, know your <laughs> know your methodology, but know the errors, and then and try to control the errors. And and you can be it can, you, any of them can work as long as you are just controlling for the known error of your technology.
1: How uh, that ISAC, it takes a while to to get that done, right?
2: So it just depends. So there's level one, level, and level two assessments. Level one is basically doing a seven-site skin fold and then doing some bone breadth measurements. Um, And you can take the bone breadth measurements out if you don't want to measure somatotype or some of those other fun things. Um, So it doesn't actually really take that long. It can take, depending, I just did a bunch of folds the other day with the MLS team and it took me about, under like eight minutes per guy to kind of get it done. But I've, I'm really proficient at it and kind of do all my landmarks really quickly. Um, so it's not too bad. It becomes really unreliable when you have like overly fat players. So like for linemen, my, my caliper can't even get on there. And then the compressibility of the skin is really high. So the dials going all over the place. So, you know, for those bigger bodied people or people that have a lot of excess body fat, you, you're you not gonna get any reliable data from them. So um yeah so but it's a great I mean I've I've been doing it for 10 12 years now I got initially trained in Australia um with my level one and then level I'm a level three now so I can do instruction and it's just a nice cheap um and practical portable way to assess something um which again if you just minimize the error of your own internal measurement um it can be reliable and you can use it to track serially
1: now, as you talk about tracking serially, what would be the best way that you recommend you continue to you know, follow up? How often is too often? How often is not often enough?
2: Yeah, so what we know is like for, for so you measure and then you have an intervention. Whatever your intervention is going to be, is it exercise stimulus? Is it a nutrition um, intervention? And then usually um, you are not going to really start to see true body comp change at a, at a fat level. Um, I I hate to say it until like six to eight weeks. Um, and so I usually wouldn't really be doing my repeat testing any, um, in an, any, like in a quicker period of time from that, because as we know the physiology of weight loss, a lot of times in the beginning, it's, it's glycogen, it's, um, it's hydration and, and your body's kind of just trying to adapt to the stimulus. And so usually six to eight weeks would be where I would be looking at it. But so like I've had you know, some, some coaches reach out to me and they're body comping guys on a weekly basis or a biweekly basis. Mm -hmm. You're probably just tracking some hydration changes and I wouldn't, or glycogen changes. And I I wouldn't rely on that data as something to tell me, um, in a finite way about a body comp change from a body fat or a lean mass perspective until I've reached those other time landmarks.
1: Sticking here you know, drop a little bit of knowledge on myself and everybody like, okay, what is going to be the best recommendation for weight gain, weight loss, you know, following up on that, you know, six to eight weeks is when you would have people re-comped. What would be some, you know, recommendations you'd make to somebody that needs to gain weight, lose weight?
2: Yeah. So, there's, there's really no magic to it. And I wish that I could like write a book that just had two pages in it. Um, because really, it's really not that hard. Although like the entire world makes it really hard, you know? And I'm not talking about putting them in the cage either. Although that, that, that's very easy actually. That's an easy one. Um, we're murdering people and putting them in cages. This is going really crazy. <laughs> this conversation. Um, sorry, hey, we guys. got some good
1: titles, easy.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but um, the, 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 to me the the fundamental part of getting it right is assessing their current habits and what are they currently doing because any sort of change weight gain weight loss lean mass gain body fat loss any sort of change has to be a change from what they're currently doing right so if i'm currently i'm just going to really global here if i'm currently consuming let's say 2000 calories a day that's what i always do that's my habitual intake And then I drop it down and everybody always talks about, you know, a 500 calorie deficit or if you want to do, if you want to manipulate macros, you can do, you can, you can, you can, you can skin this cat so many different ways, intermittent fasting, meal plan and portion size, uh, keto, uh, page, you know, um, weight watchers points, like you can do it. You just have to create a change from the norm, you know? And then the second piece, the second page of my book, Evaluate what they're doing. Come up with your intervention. Maybe it's three pages long. And then the third page is consistency, consistency. We don't get stronger when we lift once every two weeks. We don't get more flexible if we try to improve that once a week. Same thing with nutrition. Nutrition is four to six workouts a day, depending on how many times you're feeding yourself. And if you're not consistent with that, you're not gonna get results. And I always tell my athletes that you strength coaches have it way easier than us because you get them in a controlled environment for an hour, two hours, and you tell them what to do and they're in, you have a cage, you have a cage uh, <laughs> that they're in.
1: And sometimes we're murdering them, like go look yes, at some strength yes. coaches out there. It's
2: like everything, right? And then from a nutrition perspective, I literally cannot be there at every single time they put something in their mouth. and. Um, that's the hardest part about being a nutrition professional is that food is, is not just macros, it's behavior and it's emotion and it's habit. And it's very, very like human, you know? And so to, 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 to try to get in on all those workouts, you know, um, it's hard, but, but that's what you, you need consistency, right? You need them to do it, do it consistently. And I've had so many players that were like, yeah, I eat really well on Monday. You know why haven't I lost any <laughs> weight? And you're just like, bro, this is a day, this is a commitment, you know, to to making this change. So, yeah, that's kind of my answer on that.
1: <clears throat> I, I wonder if we have any. You know, I'm going to assume that some of our listeners are like, okay, great, we've got a nutritionist on staff, but the players never see him or her because, like you said, split and have all these other things. Yeah, talk about that difficulty of, if you're not around the athletes, it, it, it's gotta be impossible to make change, no?
2: Yes, 100%, uh, half, of, half of being, and you're in this, we're in the same profession, we're behavior change modifiers, right? We, our job is to modify behavior to re- achieve a result. And we're dealing with human beings, not robots. And so I think why I say all that is because trust needs to be built when you're gonna go into someone's world and change behavior. And so if you're never around, or you're just a, a, a business card on a, uh, on a bulletin board somewhere at school, um, there's no trust there. And, and, and really, you know, we all have been there, you go, you know, maybe you go see a new doctor or a new Cairo or whatever, and you're like, ooh, that nervousness about like, meeting someone you've never met before. And so um, if you're not taking if you're if your nutrition professional isn't taking an active role in just being there and just showing up. Um, then that trust is harder to garner, you know, and a lot of our athletes are lazy and not self-motivated. So you kind of have to, I used to always say like, you know, out of sight and a mind, hundred percent with us. Um, so you got to have someone that's going to kind of try to get into their space and, and develop that trust.
1: It's interesting you say that because one of my former assistants, um, who's now down at a different university in Texas, He said something similar. He's like, you know what? Like, how good would our guys be if lifting or practice was optional? He's like, probably pretty bad, but Mm -hmm. nutrition, completely optional. So what we did is we had our nutritionist come in every Monday and we took 15 minutes out of their weight training session and it was dedicated to a different topic every day and trying to make it interactive. So that way we could start to create those changes. Um, You know, that's my one idea of it. What are some other good ways that you've seen getting face time, for lack of a better term with the athletes.
2: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, when I first started at the bears and they had never had a full-time dietitian before, that's exactly what I did. I asked the strength coach if I could do mine was a two minute talk at the beginning of the lift when guys were just coming and huddling together and the football schedule is so tight, like to get in is really hard. So I would just kind of get up on literally a soapbox and just kind of do a like tip of the day and you know, and really try to hit them hard with things that matter to them, like recovery or injury, um, recovering from injury, and just trying to almost do a sell job. Like if you have a, if you have a supplement your agent sent you, and you don't know if you should take it, come see me, and and you kind of just try to build that bridge to how you can help them. And so those are really easy opportunities to, to engage your nutrition professional for sure. Just give them a few minutes in front of the guys. Obviously, if you have a head coach that's bought in to carve out some education time in front of them as well. Um, and then really, honestly, the easiest way to to an athlete's heart is through his mouth. So really, I what I used to do too, when I was still trying to like kind of develop relationship with our guys is I'd go into the weight room with some new bar that we were trialing and just ask if anyone wanted to be my, I called them my sampler boys. Who wants to be my sampler boy? I got this new bar, it's made from crickets, cricket protein, remember those? Um, I need someone to try this for me you know and just kind of try to have fun with it and uh get them to just trial new products or get them eating something new or um engaging with them that way and then and then really it just cascades from there
1: well we've talked a lot about you know the team sport and things prior so let's talk about you know if anybody was looking at your resume they'd be like okay in the nfl doing two different roles two different teams why leave that world and do what you're doing now? so talk about what uh, exactly it is that you're doing now?
2: yeah, so I was um so I left the bears because i was I was told to leave the bears, so that's the situation that happened with with me. um and so it was just staffing change. um it had been my third regime, and I was just another victim of the uh, the proverbial you know cycling that happens in pro sport and what we all sign up for. so. To be honest with you it was a blessing in disguise because i had been kind of scheming about about kind of getting out and doing my own thing for a while and so came back to colorado which is where i was you know before we moved to chicago and and really just tried to start to uh kind of develop my own way you know and and i loved working in football you know um it's literally been almost half my career between the saints and the bears nine years um, but it definitely is an environment that kind of requires you to sell your soul. You're, you're there all the time, um, seven days a week, long hours. And um, I have a family, and uh, it was just kind of one of those things where I'm like, you know, I think I have enough knowledge and enough contacts right now where maybe I can choose how often I want to to give that soul away. (laughs) So that's kind of been it's kind of been a really fun experience and and actually getting back out and zoning out again out of the NFL world and getting back into some other sports um, has been really good and really refreshing to me and um, being in this for so long and and kind of having the connections and networks and the experience that I do. um, I'm also moving into kind of the training and mentoring um, piece uh, in performance nutrition. So um, a colleague of mine, Dr. Dana Liss, who's a well-known um, researcher and dietitian, we've kind of started a, a group together called Performance Nutrition Professionals. We'll be uh, launching our, our LLC in a couple weeks, and we're basically just trying to um, provide training, really good evidence-based training and performance nutrition, not only for dietitians, but for strength coaches, athletic trainers, um, through courses that are actually in person and live and, and affiliated with academic institutions. So like our first one's going to be in conjunction with University of Colorado, and to try to kind of bring back some of that um, academic learning that we all did when we were doing our undergrad, but had no idea how to apply it, you know, back to people who are like, you know, we call it lab to life, like bringing back lab to life, but for people that are actually working, working in the field, you know, so that's really exciting to me because it's, I love teaching and I love, uh, I really love nerding out on science. And so it's kind of an opportunity to, to do both in my world, like still service with some teams here, but then also really get into my passion project, which is educating and training and mentoring. So we're excited for that to launch. No, you bring,
1: yeah, you bring up a good point because that's kind of, you know, why we exist at Strength Coach Network is yeah. trying to bridge the gap between real life and university setting and, and why we have, you know, the site in our fundamentals course, um, just to, to bridge that gap and, you know, for you and your colleague doing that with nutritionists, I think that's also huge because there has to also just be a massive gap between what you're taught as a RD or as a nutritionist and what actually happens because, um, you know, the, it's not taught in our world how to relate to professional, professional. Like, is that things that gets taught in your educational world too or no? Is that stuff that you guys go over in your course or?
2: Not really. I think we all get educated in our own silo, you know? And then we kind of get thrown out into the world right. and then we all have to play nice, you know? And so to me, I also feel like across sport disciplines, especially if you take a trainer, a dietitian, uh and, and a strength coach, there's all areas in which we overlap in our practice area. You know, a lot of trainers are involved in hydration. A lot of trainers are involved in, in sometimes nutrition recommendations because they may not have a dietitian on the team. Same thing with sport uh, with strength coaches. They might be um, the ones, they might be the dietitian when you don't have someone full-time. They're giving out supplements. They're um, recommending nutrition plans. And that's part of your training as a strength coach too. And so I feel like, um, there, we all kind of have a little bit of a a little bit of overlap in each of our areas in in the world of performance nutrition, specifically. And so we're just trying to also look at that gap too, but provide like really credible and evidence based information and and more training than just like listening to a lecture on your computer while you're maybe 10% invested because your players are walking by or your baby's crying, you know, (laughs) just to be real.
1: What would be you know for our strength coaches that are listening out there what is the best way that a strength coach can help a nutritionist a dietitian on a staff where like you said you can't be everywhere but if a strength coach is around and they're they're actually around the team and they're with them all the time yes. what is the best practice for a strength coach to essentially work under and be giving recommendations through you let's just use an example hey you and i work together we're yep. at, you know, Johnny whatever university and you're the dietitian and I'm with the guys all the time, how yes. would I best serve them through you working underneath you?
2: Yeah, so I think it's really simple. You just have to have the right systems built up, you know, and so for example, if the dietitian comes in and, and sets up the fueling station for you guys, but can't be there all the time, then then it's kind of like that RD can help to inform the strength coach, okay, this is why we have these products here. It's not just throwing a whole bunch of crap on the floor and like, oh, grab your stuff. It's like, here's our pre, during, post fueling options for the guys. This is why we have them here. This is why they work. Maybe doing an intro session with the team, but then when the dietitian's not there, the strength coach just waves the banner and encourages guys to go over there, you know, go get your recovery stuff. This is why it's important. Just echoing those things. And then I think where, where it becomes really important is, is that there's, um, an opportunity for the strength coach to just flag the, the the clinical cases that need to be seen by somebody, you know. So, any sort of weight management probably needs to to also have the support of a dietitian. Any sort of eating disorder, disordered eating situation needs to be flagged and said that way. Even in some cases, like you know, we have to start to also appreciate that there's medical nutritional therapy for when they're injured. So, like at in the NFL, I had a whole list of different. Um, ailments, you know, bow uh, stress fractures, uh, muscle tendon issues, uh, muscle poles, um, ACL repairs. There's, there's an intervention for each of those nutritionally. And even if you don't even want to go down into the science of like ligament feeding ligaments, just at a basic level, the guy is going to be uh, out for 10 months with his ACL or MCL guess what? He's going to probably lose a lot of mass and he might get really fat or he might get really skinny. And if that body composition change is really hard and really like dramatic, that impacts his ability to get back on the field, right? Because in the NFL anyway, they're robots, right? So I don't care. You're my 220 pound running back and you're going to go and get your surgery and rehab. But the expectation is you're going to be popping back in as fast as possible. That's not going to work if you're at 20% body fat, or you've you're at, you know, to you're at 180 pounds, because you've lost all of your mass because you've been sitting around rehabbing, right. So at a very basic level, any of those injuries can have a a, a impact um, on body comp. And so that's where the dietitian can come in and help to mitigate some of those things. So yeah, so those are the things too where it's kind of like, programs will be set up, you can you can definitely encourage them to do those programs. And then being able to kind of go, okay, here's a situation where I can flag this and maybe get some additional support and on a case-by-case basis refer them out.
1: Oh, that's awesome. That's that's good for me to hear, and I think it's also really good for our, you know, strength coaches listening out there so they can, you know, just help, like you said, carry the banner and and do right by the athletes. Um, You know, we're coming up on the end of the hour here. Where can any of our listeners that have made it this far, where would they – go to continue to follow you and continue to get to learn from you.
2: Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm, um, elite eats, uh, elite underscore eats underscore, um, ink. So elite eat ink. Um, and we'll, we'll get that put up in the podcast. And then the website is www.elite-eats.com. Um, and then the performance nutrition professionals, we're going to be launching that, um, business in a couple weeks. And so if you follow me on elite eats, We'll have all the information for that and, um, and all the information for the course that's coming up and it'll be in June this year at the University of Colorado. And we've already got continuing education credits for strength coaches, um, athletic trainers and dietitians approved for it. So we're really excited about it. Well, NSCA is, is on board and gonna help us a little bit with promoting that um, as well. So we're excited to, to get going and just get training and educating.
3: Congratulations on making it to the end of the video. Why don't you celebrate by watching more videos just like it? You can also help us on our quest to placate the algorithm gods by liking, sharing, subscribing, and commenting. Thank you.